And I was shown that um, uh, that Lucifer would return, that the UN and the Vatican were going to be completely behind it, again, under false pretenses. He's going to show up and say, I'm here to save the day, right? Uh, and, okay, fine, you know. Yeah, of course, ahead, you can say whatever you want. But I've always hated censorship. It's the internet. Sometimes, you know, once they get you for your first love bite, well, it depends on how aware you are, right? I forgot my bullets. I never had a gun. Here I am left standing. Am I the only one? For what I see, memories have guilted me. I'll never see the sun. Uh, first of all, as you know, the uh, the Anunnaki and the Draco are enemies. Second of all, underneath Baghdad was a stargate that was created by the Anunnaki so that they could transfer from the middle to the Earth. I'll never see the sun I could just end it all But the demons will have won Practitioners that you know, some are, are good and some use their magic for good and to heal and to help and others do use it for evil. And, you know, in some cases, you know, people really were. <laughs> this is too much sometimes. From the broken ruins of Babylon, this is End of Days Radio. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the End of Days. The date is 7-11-2017. Wow, we're already in 2017. We're in the future, yet I see no rocket packs, yet I I see no airships. Well, we do have airships. I guess airplanes would be airships, right? I don't know. Anyways, I'm super excited to be here with you all. Our guest today is Linda Godfrey. Very cool. She's a friend of the show. And you listeners out there, she's actually one of your favorite guests on this program. So I am super hyped to have her on the show today. And stay tuned after the break. There's quite a bit of drama to talk about. I am going to explain the Wolfman situation, what happened there, and we have some more to get into as well. So if you'd like, feel free to stay for after the break. There's a lot to get into. Now, Linda, Linda Godfrey, is one of the best cryptozoologists in the world. As an author and journalist, she was the first to break the story of a terrifying werewolf-like monstrosity lurking in the shadow-shrouded forest surrounding Elkhorn, Wisconsin's Bray Road. She's the author of many books on strange creatures. 
Hello. Hello, Linda. Yes, this is Linda. This is Paul. Hey, this is Dan. Welcome to the end of days. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, how how is your day going? How how have things been lately for you? Anything new in the world of Linda Godfrey? Oh, there's there's always a thing or two new. I'm working on a new book right now. And so that I'm kind of in the thick of that. So that's sort of where my head's at, but I also have um, you know, ongoing cases that I'm investigating and, and um, some really unusual stuff just lately. This has been a weird year, you know, in, in both good ways and bad ways for me and for just about everybody I know. So, you know, I'm not sure what's up with that. But, but uh, it, you know, it seems like there's so much going on in the crypto world right now with, you know, all these bat-like, humanoid creatures in Chicago that Lon Strickler is following and other people too. Um, that's happening and it almost seems like there's a news blackout because we're getting more and more reports and yet really nothing is coming out on the mainstream news like it usually does with these things, which makes me want to watch it even more closely. And um, I've had uh, you know, reports of some weird things happening around the Bray Road area um, I'm getting reports from other parts of the country that I'm, you know, trying to, to dig into and, and find out about. So, yeah, it's it's kind of uh, an intense time, I think. And Linda, what, what title do you prefer? Um, I, I think I remember you saying you don't like to go by cryptozoologist. You, you prefer just researcher. Is that am I remembering that right? Anywhere like researcher, investigator or longtime student of the strange and, and unknown, you know, maybe something like that. Um, you know, I, I don't like to give myself official titles because I feel like I'm still learning after 26 years along with everyone else. And I don't feel like there is or should be any real hierarchy in the people who are investigating because, you know, you can have the most educated, best-equipped person out in the field and it may be, you know, the grandpa taking a little stroll in the woods with his grandson who somehow makes the biggest discovery of all. We don't have any way of knowing what works. But what I do know is that very, very many of the sightings are made by people who are totally unprepared, not expecting, just out, you know, driving, walking, doing whatever they're doing, living their lives. And, and they see these things or these things come to them. And um, they're kind of the lucky ones that way. And oftentimes, so many of us who are investigating and we've got all our trail cams and we've got, you know, I've got a um, dash cam now on my car and that sort of thing. And uh, sometimes we're the last to see these things. So, you know, I, I don't like to think that there's a certain one way to do anything or a certain way of ranking people who are researching these creatures. I think that it's such a wide open field. It's such a big world, and we know that this is a worldwide phenomenon. This, it, it, like Bigfoot, you know, it's the same sort of thing. And the water monsters, we find these things all over the place. And since we don't know what they are, we don't know for sure what methods will really work. So rather than dictating, yep, I'm the top, I'm, I know all this, and this is the way to do it, I think it's smarter for us, you know, to work as communities of people usually work, where each um, goes to their own skill and their own um, best mindset on the subject and, and does their own best job. And, and that way, I think we have a lot more 
chance of finding the right way or ways that that work and in learning what we want to learn about these creatures. Is it too early to talk about the new book at all, or is there any type of preview you could give us? Um, well, I can tell you it's going to have creatures. And it, I'm coming at it from kind of a different angle that actually my um, my editor at Tarcher Penguin Random House suggested to me, and then I kind of went, oh, yeah, that I could see that working. And that part I can't really talk too much about, but... You know, I can tell you that I'm going to have some um, bunches of certain types of sightings. I've got um, a lot of good material on um, big cats in certain locales and how they, how they, especially um, you know the black panther types. I'm going to have a chapter on on that alone. Um, it's going to cover a lot of these sightings of canines that are too big and too weird to be ordinary canines, but they're not walking upright. You know, you can't, in my view, you can't really say they fit the dog man or the wolf man type if you don't see some bipedal locomotion, but there's more and more and more of them that are just odd in other ways, and I'm going to address that, and I've got a pretty good collection of those things too um, in relationship to, you know, the angle that I'm taking on this book and uh, and also just the people's um observations of them. In fact, I, I just got one. This one I may I may be pre- previewing on my blog if she will allow it, but um, I've been interviewing a woman from Pennsylvania who's had a sighting of one of that type of canine, and um, I often, just well, always if I can, like to ask witnesses if they could make their own sketches. I don't care if they're artists or, you know, they, they'll say, well, I can't draw, I can't draw a straight line, but no matter how well they draw, it gives us some idea of what they saw. And sometimes it helps them a lot, too, because when you sit down and you're drawing, you're thinking about it, and you're like, and your mind is visualizing, and those images come back. I think that kind of you know feeds that ability to recall the image. And they'll say, oh, yeah, that's right. This ear was that way. you know, And it helps them to get it in their own minds, whether or not they're great. But this lady, um, who's had several sightings, um, kind of in the southeastern southeastern section of the state, quite recently, um, drew my first submitted GIF illustration, where she had seen it running, and the the oddness of its gait struck her so much that she, you know, drew the you know the um, two different views of it, and then made it into a GIF, so you just get an idea of how this thing was moving, which is fantastic, you know. The witnesses, I just give them such a hand, because, well, obviously, without them, none of us would really have great observations, because the eyewitness testimony is key in these subjects, because all of these things are so notorious for not leaving great evidence and not being photographable. So, you know, when the eyewitness can come up with something like that, it's just really, really helpful. I, I remember when I first started to get into this type of stuff is when I was a kid and I remember going online and the, the big cat thing stuck, stuck out for me quite a bit. I, I remember seeing these pictures of big panthers and stuff walking around um, America and England and places like that. Are, are these sightings fairly common? Well, I, I'm not sure how exactly common they are, but um, funny you should mention that because I happen to, I happen to have a, a, a newspaper lying in my lap um, from 
It's the Hillsborough Century Enterprise, which is about in the middle of Wisconsin, maybe a little bit to the north. And um, one of my grandmothers lived there for many years, and I'm real familiar with the area. We went all over the place. And I happened to, somebody sent me this issue, and um, my friend uh, Stephen J. Stanek, who's a, a former writer for the paper, and the headline is Video Captures Big Black Cat Near Wanawak, which is um, a nearby town. And this was from May 18th of this year. And it's um, a story about uh, a video that somebody did get of one of these, and it was posted online. Um, they thought the couple that saw it thought that it was a black lab at first until they realized how big it was and how different its head was. And uh, the animal, of course, disappeared into some nearby woods, and they kept hearing it, and it, it came back after three or four hours and was sort of stalking them. And uh, the guy said, I got a really good look at it because it was standing still. I don't know if it would have been drinking out of the water or what. It was about the same size as a German Shepherd. It was solid black. Its coat was really shiny. Its head was big and round. And uh, the tail was real long, not like a regular cat's was thick, almost dragged on the ground. I mean, that's classic, um, you know, panther or mountain lion description. It's just the color that's different. He said, I stared at it for about 10 seconds, and then it looked up at me. I'll never forget the sound it made when it noticed me. It started out as a low growl that turned into a high-pitched scream. And then uh, he yelled, yelled at his wife, and uh, they got out of there. But um, this part, central part of the state, they've had quite a few... Um, panther and mountain lion sightings that really haven't gotten much notice. And again, that's one reason I want to kind of gather these and, uh, you know, put them in the book so that they're uh, in a good place. But um, the couple actually, they did a, they got a cell phone video of it, which he said doesn't do it much justice because it comes off like a smaller cat, but he could tell that, you know, being there, how big that it really was. He said it wasn't just a big tomcat. We saw it close up and it was not a regular cat. And tomcats don't scream like that, and he's right about that as well. So um, in, in certain places, I think that there, um, there are more and more of them. And there seems to be a trail particularly where they're coming from. They're starting in the Black Hills, um, starting up in the Dakotas, and they're coming down through Minnesota, sometimes down, following the Mississippi down into Iowa, sometimes crossing over through Wisconsin, over to like the Great Lakes region. And we had a great example of that about five years ago when a lot of people will remember one was shot right in the city of Chicago. And they, t they had DNA of it. And they also had DNA that was gathered um, right around my own area, which uh, the house we just moved from a few months ago, um, was about, oh, 15 minutes drive from Bray Road, something like that. And they actually had gathered DNA from sightings of the big, the, the mountain lions seen right there, and it matched the one that was in Chicago. So we know that one had gotten to Chicago from the Black Hills, just, you know, wandering all that way. So, you know, I, I think that the populations are increasing. They're, they're sending the young males out, you know, to find new mates and that sort of stuff, and they've got kind of established corridors that they travel. Are these animals that have gotten lost, or do they live up in that area? Um, 
they find somebody in Iowa. I had this out the other day in one of my one of my groups or blogs or something. There was just a female cat that was uh, shot up in the northeast corner of Iowa, which would again be right along, you know, that Mississippi area. Now, what they've been saying for years, because it seemed like when they caught one, it would always be a male, and they would say, well, you know, if it's just males, they're just striking out or they're exploring or they're, there's no breeding population. But when you've got a female, then supposedly, according to their own theory, that means there should be a breeding population. And if you've got a breeding population, that means they're finding cover and food and what they need. And perhaps they are starting to establish themselves and... I know that there are more than one um, in the Kettle Moraine State Forest down here in southeastern Wisconsin. It's one of my stomping grounds. Um, I've had Bigfoot reports there for, um, gosh, dating back to the 60s. And I've been in there in the winter. I did a a winter hike with some friends, a couple of guys, um, a couple of years ago in February where we'd had a nice snow. And there were literally hundreds of big cat prints. And I I don't mean like kitty cat prints. I mean like great cat prints, you know, six inch wide with the, and you can, you can just tell after you see enough trackways, you, you can really easily tell um, if it's in a good um, surface, like, like snow, like uh, soft snow, that's not powdery. It makes a perfect impression. And we're walking in on this trail that went for miles and we saw these going in and we still kind of stupidly kept going and when we came back, there were more of them criss- crisscrossing. So we kind of felt like we'd been tracked. And, and uh, it's kind of creepy because you, you just, they're not supposed to attack humans, but then sometimes they do. So I, I always advise people not to take chances like that. <laughs> yeah, when you think about it, something like a big cat, I mean, they could really eat anything. They could eat household pets, they could eat garbage, they could eat animals yeah. that live in the area i i could almost see how they could survive and like live up in a tree or find a you know warmer area well there are tons of deer i mean deer with fawns you know tons of turkey things like that and i mean i've told this story on a couple of different radio shows so i don't know if you want me to go into the whole thing but um in our previous house my husband was almost attacked by one in our backyard oh wow and, and I mean, it was really close. And he's my, my husband. I have to tell you, is is a, um, a lifelong outdoorsman. He grew up on a he grew up on a farm, going out in the fields at night in the dark with a flashlight to shoot raccoons to keep them out of the cornfield. You know, he and so he's real. And he hunts. He hunts deer and turkey, and and uh, he knows his Wisconsin animals and and what is something and what isn't. Well, he went out back at night to. Um, Chuck something in the shed way at the edge of our yard. And we lived, two sides of our yard were bordered by drop-offs down into these openings into the Kettle Moraines of the State Forest. So it can be a little wild back there. But um, he just got near the shed, and he didn't even take a flashlight. You know, that's how confident he is in the dark, although he does never goes out without one now. But this thing, he heard this huge scream and all of a sudden this thing landed on the ground like there's a big wump you know several feet in front of him and it was right there and there was no mistaking it and he started walking backwards yelling at it flapping and waving his arms 
And so he said something told him if he had turned around, he'd be dead meat. It would just be on him. And that's probably true because once you turn your back, you become prey, you know, and, and they know that you're afraid of them. So he had to walk. And our backyard was a little less than an acre, and then we had some more acreage down into the woods. But he had to walk that whole yard backwards um, trying to see where the deck was when he came to it so he wouldn't fall over backwards on the deck and make himself perfect easy tray, prey. And this thing paced him the whole way back, kind of snarling, until he got up onto the deck, and then it slunk off into the woods. And he came into the house, and if it had jumped him, I would never have heard it because I was in the house doing precisely what I'm doing now, except I had also headphones on, talking on, on the radio to somebody, and um, it could have dragged him away. I never might have known what happened to him, for all you know. It's just kind of creepy. And he's the, the worst thing was that he saw it the next morning in daylight when he um, went to work and turned the corner around from our house, and there it was coming out of a cornfield, and it just stopped and stared at him. You know, and he said he had this bad feeling like it was going, oh, I remember you. I almost had you. And uh, two other of our neighbors on different ends of the street also saw the same thing at that same time and didn't know we had. So we just happened to all be at a neighbor picnic and discovered that. So, um, yeah, I mean, you really can't be too careful around any wild predator. You know, no matter how safe people tell you they are, you, we still don't really know if they're just terribly hungry or maybe they're a little wounded and they're getting used to humans, who knows? Yeah, the thing that's scary about big cats is, I mean, from what little I know about these animals, I know that they typically, they'll attack from behind and they'll do it, do it so swiftly and so powerful that they'll literally just come up behind you, chomp down on the back of your head or the back of yep. your neck, kill your brain or destroy your brain stem. And then you're out. You don't have time to scream or anything like that. I always think of these, uh, like that movie, The Ghost in the Darkness with Val Kilmer, where those two lions are killing dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people. I don't even remember. But they were able to take down humans that were holding weapons. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy because you you described exactly what they do. They get a certain height in the tree that they can easily leap from and jump when your back is turned. And they have that perfect. And the nice thing about panthers and mountain lions, though, is they do kill you before they eat you. If a bear gets you, they just start eating. And they don't care if you're screaming and yelling and, you know, because they, they're so much stronger than you. They can just, you know, give you a, a cuff with the back of their paw or, um, you know, bite you again wherever it is that you're bothering them. So and there have been more bear attacks. I think somebody killed a black bear up in Alaska, and there was another story just the other day about um, a youth camp counselor who was the bear, I think it was just yesterday on the news, the bear clamped its jaws over its head and was in the process of pulling him out of his sleeping bag before he was able to alert other campers and, you know, between them all, um, he was able to get away. But he said he heard this crunching sound and realized it was the bear biting his head tighter. Now, how would you, how would you feel about that? You know, and I confess, I have bear phobia. I would rather run into a dog man or a Bigfoot than a bear any day. Uh, yeah, I have to agree with you. I I know that they can run something like 40 miles per hour. and They're just so big and so strong. It doesn't take them much. Like you're saying, they could just swipe you with one of their paws and their claws are huge and it doesn't take much to get really 
really damaged from a, a creature that big. That's right. You, you know, you, you wonder how humans have uh, survived to become who we are because we're so puny and helpless next to them if we don't have weapons, you know, or any of the things of our, that, we, that we've made in our civilization to uh, help us in situations like that. If it's just, you know, mano a barrel, there's not much contest. Yeah, exactly. And to add to that, if you are trying to take on a bear, a normal gun isn't even going to cut it. You need to have like a, a special high-powered rifle or, or some kind of sh- uh, double-barrel shotgun with slugs in it. You actually have to have a huge gun, too. Right, exactly. And I mean, and they're not all, it's true that they're not really always interested in you. Um, my dad grew up in northern Wisconsin, which is pretty much out there in the boonies up in Price County. And we used to spend a good part of our summers every year up there. And um, I remember going out for a walk down the gravel road with my cousin, Donna, and we had gotten quite away from the house. And we turned back and looked, and there was a black bear between us and the farmhouse. And that's not a good feeling. <laughs> but, you know, it just it kind of glanced at us, and then it just kept running across the field wherever it was headed. So, you know, it's not like they're completely bloodthirsty after you. But, again, as they get more and more used to humans, and there are more of them, um, and they find that um, they're next to these wonderful garbage cans or sometimes found these wonderful soft-skinned animals that it's so easy to catch and eat, you know, that run on two legs, um, you know, sometimes sometimes they they learn that and then they become a nuisance. And that, it's, it's recurring more and more, I think. Yeah, one thing about bears is because of where they live, because of the way that they look, and because of their habits, I mean, we know that they like fish, they'll go through garbage. It does make you wonder if many Bigfoot sightings are actually just bear sightings. It's probable that some are. You know, I think it depends on how good of a look people get. When they can see the whole head and watch how the body moves and shifts and see the feet, that kind of thing, usually they're pretty certain. You know, if somebody says to me, well, I saw something brown with fur or dark black with fur running in the woods, there's no way to know really what they saw. Or if part of the bear or, or creature or whatever it is is in shadow or Bigfoot is in shadow, you know, it, sometimes your eyes can play tricks. But um, there are still so many sightings where people get really great looks, and it's either in their headlights or daytime. I've, I seem to get a lot of, of, of Bigfoot daytime sightings. Um, and then it's a lot harder to refute those. And it's my understanding that Bigfoot has a completely different smell. Like a bear, you wouldn't really smell, but Bigfoot, you'll smell from like a mile away. Yeah, they've and you know they've got kind of different smells. Um, I I feel like they're able to um, sort of, according to what they want to accomplish, that they they have different. Um, oh, what's the word? Well, blood compounds or whatever. Whatever, or or maybe um, some kind of scent emitting apparatus. I'm not going to try and be biological about it because I'm sure I'll, you know what I mean. Some something that emits scent according to the occasion. Because I know I've I've been in a spot where there had just been one that I knew for sure because there were nine inch handprints um, crunched out of a 35 foot long. Um, oak tree branch 
brand, ni- brand new nice wood, so you knew that it wasn't an old thing, right in front of me and snapped off the tree and dropped down to the, the floor. And it smelled skunk-ish, but not bad, terrible. Like if you, if you get a good snootful of, of uh, skunk scent, you just want to tear your mouth off your face. You know, because it's it's just it's so awful or your nose. And this was mildly, you know, skunkish, maybe musky. Musky is the better word. Kind of mixed with like smoky grass was how that smelled. But another time, um, I was on one of those trails in the in the uh, the kettle forest, and again I was with uh, Sanjay Singha, who a good hiking companion of mine. And, um, again, it was a winter month. It may have been February, January or February. Um, and we're walking along, and I happened to spot this tree that was a little bit off the trail that it just struck me that it was so big, and it had so many branches coming up from the ground and looked oddly worn in certain spots. And I was, I thought to myself, that, that looks like a, a tree where something could kind of hang out behind it or up in it and you really wouldn't ever notice it if you were just walking by, staying on the trail. And so um, I kind of crawled around to get behind it and see what was back there and started taking some pictures. And all of a sudden, this horrendously bad scent just engulfed me. I don't know any other way to say it. Now, this is midwinter. There are no skunks out and about. And this was different than a skunk smell, but it's it had that element of, of disgustingness. And I actually had to bend over and gag. And um, I was trying to warn Sanjay to stay back. And all of a sudden, I looked at him, and he's bending over gagging. It had kind of traveled, you know, like wafting around the tree. And we both just looked at each other and said, let's get out of here. Because, you know, there shouldn't be anything out walking around that time of year um, that could do that, that I know of, that would, that would produce a smell like that. And these these two times, there for me, and other people may disagree or, or have smelled other scents, um, but if this last one was like a warning scent, like get out of my playpen, you know, here, or, or leave right now, it was very effective because... We just couldn't stay there and breathe it. It was too awful. So it certainly would have worked for you know whatever what they were intending if that was the intent. So maybe maybe what it is is they have some kind of gland in their body that they can activate okay. by rubbing their legs the right way, kind of like a, an animal would. Gland. That is the perfect word I was searching for. Thank you. Yes, some kind of gland, <laughs> and I I don't know where or what it would be, of course, but. I mean, you can kind of just, you know, think about different types of animals that have those things and, and um, you know, wherever it is or, or whatever. Um, I know other people have experienced that, and it, it can be really, really effective as a deterrent. Yeah, the, the one time that I think that I might have encountered Bigfoot, all it was was some screaming that I was hearing across the street. It sounded like it was deep in the trees. And then there was just this most god-awful smell. Smelled very close to a skunk, but probably not quite as bad. Right. That's, yeah, it, there's some similarity. It's that kind of sharp muskiness that, that it has. But like I said, the, the skunks is just, um, you know, unbearable. The, the other one, the one we, we smelled was, as bad as it was, 
it was different than a skunk's. I mean, you still want it made you want to gag and it made you want to leave, but it wasn't it wasn't that blinding searing sort of thing that you get from a full-on skunk spray. Linda, have you seen that whole uh, killing Bigfoot thing by Peter Putkimer? No, I kind of purposely didn't because it makes me... I I just... I feel that um, it's wrong to do. I think that they're not necessarily people, but they are sentient and that they are close, closely related somehow to us. You know, there's just too much similarity. There, there's enough difference that I don't think they're the same exact species. I mean, they're, the fact that their arms are so long, you know, that their hands reach their knees, and that they're able to live without fire or civilization, you know, that's another big thing. Um, you know, and just, just other things like that about them. Um, they're different, but they're still pretty darn close. And... I can't imagine, if you could shoot one with a gun to kill it, then you could also somehow shoot it up with enough um, of a some kind of, of, of stun chemical to subdue it long enough at least to study it, if you had to do that. You know, but just to kill one. And the other thing is that an awful lot of people report feeling um, that they were threatened and having shot at it, the shooting did no good. You know, the bullets, hmm. they, they would say, I know the bullets made contact. I know I took them with all these slugs. You know, I emptied my automatic clip. And I've heard the same thing about Dogman, by the way. And the creatures just don't seem to go down. You know, they just turn around and run into the woods. Once in a while, I, I, I've heard that there have been supposedly ones that were killed. I don't know um, if those were proven or not, but... Um, to me, it just feels like murder, and that's just—it's my own thought, it's my own feeling, but that—that's how I feel about it. Yeah, one thing—one thing about uh, Bigfoot that bothers me is a lot of people try to hoax either videos or there was that yeah. guy years ago who supposedly had a body. That, that really bothers me because here I am doing a show and trying to explain to people that there's a paranormal reality out there, but when people do these hoaxes what happens is it, it destroys all their trust, possibly for the le- rest of their lives. They won't even be open to the possibility just because of one dumb hoaxer. Yeah, that's really true. Um, hoaxers are not my favorite people, but you know that's another reason not to just go shooting whenever you see one because it could be, if, unless you're getting a really good look at it and you're positive that it's a live creature on its own recognizance. Maybe you're shooting a human in a Bigfoot suit or a ghillie suit, you know. And there was that guy, I think it was out in Colorado maybe five years ago, that was out jumping out in the highway at people wearing a ghillie suit outfit. Oh. And um, he got hit by, I think, two different cars and, and killed. You know, so there's some risk, at least, to these people that, that are doing these things. But, you know, and it was the same thing with uh, um, the so-called Gable film out of Michigan. People were saying, well, that's the Michigan dogma, even though it never showed a creature that was standing up. It was just this kind of weird, scary-looking, creature-looking thing. But when it was proven on Monster Quest to have been a hoax and the the perpetrators confessed on TV, um, I started hearing a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, the Michigan dogman, they just proved that whole thing's a hoax. You know, in people's minds, even though it's one thing, just one instance, 
and they're ready to wipe out all the hundreds and thousands of sightings around the United States over many decades because one instance was proven a hoax. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's really the thing is it doesn't take much. I mean, uh, whatever it is, whether it's UFOs, Bigfoot or anything, all it takes is one hoaxer and then you your mind just goes back in the box. And it's going to take right. a lot to get it back out of the box again because you just had your trust destroyed. Yeah, that's a very good simile, a very good way to put it. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just so sad because, to me, it also disrespects all of the people who are brave enough to come forward and give their stories, um, sometimes appearing on TV. You know, I mean, if you put your face on TV and say that you saw these things or, or whatever, um, some people are putting their jobs on the line. They know they're going to get kitted for the rest of their life um you know it's i I give a lot of credit to people who will come forward and are honest witnesses so when people go in hoax um you know i think they do a great disservice to the witnesses as well have have you seen this it's called the independence day footage i'm not sure if it's real or not it was from i believe a year or two ago and it showed a a Bigfoot with a baby Bigfoot. Have you seen that one? I think I have. It's been a while, and I can't recall it real exactly. But, yeah, I can remember seeing the kind of the, the Bigfoot with the baby. Yeah, I, but I can't, I can't picture it exactly in my mind. There's so many that come and go these days. How about the idea, what do you think of this, the idea that uh, this is something that gets tossed around in UFO circles a lot, but what about the idea that Bigfoot might actually be a spe- either a species of aliens, some type of interdimensional alien, or might be an experiment coming from one of these underground bases? Well, you know, of the two, I would say the experiment seems likelier to me because um, there's a lot of Native American tradition that um, Bigfoot, especially up in Canada, there were there they have. Um, tales of when there were battles between the regular Native Americans and what they called the hairy breast people. Um, the Canadian Cree have these stories, and um, the hairy breast people were always stealing their women, you know, to to have them for that purpose. And um, every once in a while, you would hear that yes, there was a, a child born. They they were able to successfully produce offspring here and there, and. Um, that makes me think, you know, if there's that much genetic material in common, well then, you know, maybe, maybe that's just what's happening. Maybe you don't need the, the labs under the ground reproducing those um, creatures or, or mating them with men. Maybe they, they just occur. That seems a little more likely. As far as them being from other planets, you know, like Chewbacca maybe getting stranded here and... <laughs> and and mating. Um, I don't know. There have been a few instances where they where they've been seen in close proximity. There was a again a, a pretty famous incident in Frederick, Wisconsin, which is kind of toward kind of up north again, where this farmer was coming home uh, from I think an FFA meeting in town and saw this round vehicle sitting on the the road. Um, kind of barring his way. He wasn't very close 
or very far, excuse me, from his uh, farmhouse. And it had a window where he could look in and see this creature. And he said it had this long face. It was kind of covered with fur. He said it, it had its hands up in the air, almost like it was afraid and sort of supplicating him not to run into its spacecraft or something like this. And and uh, Bozak was the farmer's name, B-O-S-A-K. You can Google that and find quite a few um, stories on it. I have it in my Monsters of Wisconsin book. And there, there are others, you know, where people have seen something that would indicate furry creatures in a spaceship or just coming out of one, but not many. You know, there, there aren't a lot. And so I, I don't know, you know. If it's coming from another world, perhaps, maybe something closer to us, um, that also seems a little more likely than extraterrestrial from, you know, the other side of the solar system. But, again, it's all such conjecture. You can talk about it and talk about it and still not know for sure what the answer is at this point, I think. Yeah, another thing that's tricky about it um, I, I like to look at dinosaurs because dinosaurs, really, the only thing that you can find to get you started is a skull. And then once you find the bones, they never find a complete skeleton. They always have to piece the bones together and try to figure out what the animal looked like. Well, it's going to be the same same thing for Bigfoot. Even if people find his bones, they're just going to think it's a bone belonging to a bear, an elk, or something else. Yeah, and I suppose unless they get it to you know DNA analysis or something, but at least at least with a Bigfoot, you would know if you could analyze it that you have something different. That you would have um, a primate, a, a great ape type of thing that was too different that should not have been here and that should not be here now, according to present day zoology. Um, if you found, say, a dead dog man. Um, which is usually described as looking like pure canine for the most part, with a few notable exceptions, um, it would just show up as some type of wolf or wolf-dog hybrid, I'm pretty sure. And then you still wouldn't know what you had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, How about these tells? Is it true that Bigfoot might actually eat humans sometimes? There are um, stories from some of the uh, the western west coast Native Americans uh, going up into Canada, Northern California, and going up into Canada, particularly um, that tell of what sound like Bigfoots um, that are can't, that are eating people, you know, and some of those traditions are very strong. And I don't think that um, they or, or others who study all these different types of tales believe that it's a universal thing. Just as among humans, you know, maybe if you go back to Stone Age humans, you would find some that ate other people that were cannibals and, and others that didn't, or, or some maybe that have worse temperaments than others that are more aggressive and might be more likely to uh, attack and then just eat whatever it was they attacked as a matter of course. So there, there is that. I don't know that there are any modern or present day examples where people, you know, I just, I can't recall reading a book of 
but then who who would see that where the Bigfoot would I mean if it's if a, if you, a Bigfoot knew you were watching it eat your friend it might not let you get away to tell the tale you know <laughs> it seems unlikely um, it, they do throw a lot of rocks at people and I've been with somebody again in the trails in um, Jay Pachochin is is a investigator some other people know and we were walking along and just decided it was a little quiet you know and we decided just to shake some small trees and um because it was a really likely spot where we'd had activities happen before and where i knew there had been sightings and i tried it and nothing much happened you know i'm you know not not a very large person well jay's like six foot one and and um, has muscles and everything so he he shook one, and that thing was, he had it really whipping around and moving. Well, he had just finished doing that when there was like a thud, and something hit him in the head, which he thought was a rock. We couldn't find it exactly because the forest floor was, was very thick with pine needles and, and other debris. But whatever it was hit him hard enough, and he was wearing a baseball cap to give him a mild concussion. And he actually... Um, lost his way on the way home, couldn't remember where he was or where he was going right after that. So, um, you know, that that's, and it's just so universal that pe- that it seems to throw rocks at people. Um, and that's nothing to scoff at when you're considering this no. is a huge creature. And one of the things that was always a big no-no when I was a kid, I mean, you could get away with a lot of stuff, but you never pick up a rock and throw it at somebody because they're just so dangerous. Yeah, they are. I mean, you can be really, really hurt with one. And um, I have a friend who is uh, Native American who actually had a lot of woodland experience with Bigfoot when she was younger um, due to where she lived. And I was telling her about that, and she said, oh, Linda, if if he threw that rock, he, she said most of the time they just throw it to scare you and they don't really aim too well. But if he actually hit him, in the head with the rock, he meant to kill him. Now, that didn't make me feel too good because not only did I feel sorry for my friend, that would have left me totally alone and defenseless <laughs> out in the middle of this this forest, and for you know who who knows what. So um, that you you live and learn, put it that way. Yeah. Um, when you go out in the field, do you take any sort of weapons with you? I mean, like a stick or pepper spray or a gun or anything? Um, well, personally, I have. I don't normally go out alone if I know I'm actually going into these trails. Um, it seems like most of my experiences have happened when I was just walking by myself and not really intending anything. But when I go out actually intending to hike the trails and go to known sighting spots. I don't go alone and I have I've been with people who were armed and other times when people weren't. Um, normally somebody at least has a good sized knife or something like that. Um, but I I carry some things like bear spray and um, you know if you have nothing else you can at least if you have a can of wasp and hornet spray that stuff squirts like 10 feet and can be very disabling if you sprayed that in something's face you know so i I mean in a pinch you can even get that but normally i have um 
the bear spray like you buy in the sporting goods stores and um, good running shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and I did want to talk a little bit about your background before we get too far along. Uh, you have been on the show twice before, but since then, listenership has doubled, if not grown even more than that. Um, so if it's okay with you, I'd just like to ask a little bit about your background. Where exactly did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, I grew up um, around Wisconsin. I was born in Madison, um, lived there till I was about eight, and then my parents moved to a um, little town in southeastern Wisconsin where I went to um, went through school and high school and met my husband at the end of our senior year. Well, I didn't meet him, but started dating him at the end of our senior year. Um, and we had a, I was lucky because my dad was a sportsman and hunter, and um, he just, you know, dra- I remember some of my earliest memories, as soon as I could wear like a pair of boots on my feet, he'd have me up at 4.30 in the morning walking around these tamarack bogs up north because we spent a lot of time up there whenever he had a weekend or a vacation. That's where we went. And, you know, I got very used to being in the outdoors, very comfortable with it and, and liked it. He, they had a cabin on a lake that was part of the old family farm. So I had that freedom. I also had a lot of wonderful freedom um, in small town Wisconsin in those days to ride my own bike around and, and really observe things. And my dad, again, because of his interests, he actually uh, was riding in the back of someone's pickup truck when he was younger up north, and some kind of strange light followed the truck, which they figured was a UFO. And there have been other UFO sightings right around Phillips and Park Falls, that area. So he always had, he became a fan of science fiction. And growing up, he had all of these um, science fiction magazines, and there'd usually be some type of alien or a rocket ship or a UFO, you know, on the cover of it. And I would read those. And he'd have all, like, the Argosy magazines, the the 60s when Ivan Sanderson was writing about Bigfoot for those types of magazines and I devoured all of those too so I kind of had that going for me um, I also loved fairy tales and myth and anything like that and read everything that I could get my hands on I even read all of the Edgar Rice Burroughs books um, when I was like in sixth or seventh grade Tarzan which I thought was just great you know the the man out there in, in the primeval jungle with the apes so you know I had sort of a mental preparation but um, certainly never really expected it to be something I would write about um, and investigate and become part of uh, for 26 years of my life. When you were growing up, did you have any authors that you kind of looked up to? Or um, I, I suppose maybe maybe Tarzan would be the one? Yeah, I loved Edgar Rice Burroughs. You know, and, and like I said, I, I read all of those and then it was a little later on that Myra Shackley started coming out with her books about the Yeti and those things, and I read all of those. And I actually also, um, for a couple of years, like in, my husband and I got married while we were in college. So um, sometime during those years, I decided to kind of study parapsychology and some of these other things on my own. And um, there was a book called Psychic Experiments Behind the Iron Curtain about the real-life things that um, Soviet Union at that time, as it was called, was was doing in terms of trying to 
utilize um, psychic abilities of people and train them and that sort of thing. And I remember my, my husband has always been such a very good sport, and I'm so very grateful to him because he's, he's always supported me. But I remember um, there was a chapter about how people could learn to sense colors with their fingertips just by touching them. And I bought a packet of multicolors of construction paper, and I put them out on the table. And um, for a couple of weeks, he and I would take turns with our eyes shut trying to see if we could identify the different colors of construction paper just by touching them. And you know what? We both got pretty good at it. We could. And we weren't claiming any, especially him, weren't claiming any special abilities. Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting because I, I like to focus on things like consciousness, telepathy, and stuff right. like that on this show. And, and what I've come to find is you're exactly right. There is a really strong reality here with this stuff, and it's not that hard for an everyday person to get some type of results. It's just that most people don't even bother to try. Exactly, exactly. There's just and, – and it's understandable because – you know, especially now, we live in such a hectic work-a-day world. You know, you get up, you stuff some food in your face, you take a shower, you get in your car, you go to your work, you come home, you know, rinse and repeat. And it's hard to get out of that grind and stop and just, you know, set a camera still instead of always moving in the video and say, hey, wait, here this moment is. What is here in this moment that I'm missing normally? And you'd be surprised what opens up to you. So is your husband, is he kind of interested in the same stuff, or does he just kind of go along with it? Um, I'd say closer to just kind of going along with it. You know, he enjoys being out in the woods, so it's not hard for me to, you know, tempt him to go out on expeditions. And, um, you know, he enjoys enjoys my, friend, my friends from the field, and uh, he will often go when I have appearances and talks and things like that. For instance, he's uh, flying out to Maine with me for the – um, the American Cryptozoology um, Conference out in Portland, Maine on Labor Day weekend. And he's going to fly out with me. We're going to meet up with some friends. And, and and he loves that kind of thing. But he's not, you know, sort of preoccupied with it or really he helps me a lot, you know, setting up my cameras and things like that. He's very cooperative, very supportive, but it's not his thing. He just he wants to catch fish, shoot deer, eat turkeys. You know, he's he's very goal-driven when it comes to uh, his time in the outdoors. And what was it that inspired you or made you want to write your first book? Well, my first book was not The Beast of Bray Road. My first published book was The Poison Widow, a true story of sin, strychnine, and murder. And this was, I wrote, a lot of people think, oh, I wrote, the, I I broke the story of the Beast of Bray Road, and then I just said, forget you, newspaper, and just went out and started writing books. And it wasn't like that. Um, after I wrote that story in um, the weekend of 91-92, New Year's weekend, I wrote for that newspaper for 10 more years. And during that time, I not only was receiving you know, reports and things about the Beast of Bray Road and, and uh, tr- just trying to store that for people, I, I only wrote like maybe four or five update stories in that whole 10-year period. I was writing about all kinds of other, everything else in the meantime. And it was a very good paper. Um, we had great editors. We had One of the editors was a former editor at Ms. Magazine who just happened to end up out there. So, um, you know, it was a really good place to be, and it was 
it was good training. But there was another thing that happened. Um, I think maybe it was about about five or six years into my working there. Um, there was this big kerfuffle over um, the the KKK Ku Klux Klan was coming to have some sort of a rally in Walworth County in Elkhorn because it's the county seat and there's a big courthouse to you know they could march around and um, my assignment was to go back and look at some of the historic newspaper issues to see if I could find. Um, if there were any big events that were happening, like in the 20s, when they were really big, the 1920s. And so I did that, and I did find some articles and and, man, and wrote that story, found out some interesting stuff. Um, but I kept seeing headlines that said something like, shocking, sordid, widow, um, does this and that, you know, shocking, poison, murderous. And I was reading them, and I realized there was this story that... Uh, was huge back in the 1920s that played out in Walworth County, um, Elkhorn, Wisconsin, home, again, home of the Beast of Bray Road, but way before, where this woman who lived in, in nearby Whitewater, uh, she and her husband took in college-age boarders, and she was having an affair with one of them, and between the two of them, they poisoned her husband with strychnine, which is a horrible death, and then she also tried to kill her four children the same way, Yikes. And, pardon? Oh, I just said yikes. Yeah, it was really horrendous. She, it turned out she was poisoning rats in the basement, experimenting upon them to figure out how big of a dose to give her kids. And I'm like, what? Where did this come from? You know, I haven't seen anything like this. And nobody, the thing was, it was considered such a blot on the town that nobody talked about it. Once they had, they had a double homicide trial. One for her and one for the, the college-age lover. He got off. She went to prison. And then it just kind of murked off. I wanted to find out what happened in that murkiness, um, where she went, why she did it, that kind of thing. I couldn't get it out of my mind. And so for six years, I was researching that. And I had when I finished, I had like 500-some pages of court documents. I had the original letters that they wrote between to one another after the husband's murder and some of them they were kind of uh you know i guess then the term would have been naughty provocative now maybe um for for these days they would underline they had code words for each other's um special parts and <laughs> had had underlined them you know in the letters it was just wild stuff and i learned what an amazing story it really was and i wanted to write that book and that was the one that I, I wrote first and presented it to Prairie Oak Press, um, which was an imprint of, of Trails Media, um, well-known for printing um, a very respected magazine, uh, Wisconsin Trails. And they liked it and, and took it, and that was printed in 2003. And when I turned in that uh, manuscript, they said, well, what else do you have? And that's when I said, I took a kind of a deep breath, and I said, well, you know, would you believe something that looks like werewolves? And when I explained it to them, what I wanted to do was, uh, with that book, was just document how all of that went down when it happened back in 91, 92. You know, when it, the story broke, it went national, uh, totally unexpectedly. You know, the media frenzy, what the people were doing, how people were reacting, 
background history, you know, just kind of put that all together so it would be in one spot for people. And they liked that. And um, both of these books, Prairie Oak Press was their history imprint, you know, because they also considered them, um, you know, historic. Because I have also also said about the, um, or often said about the Beast of Bray Road, that even if it turned out to be nothing but folklore, that was still worth documenting. Because how often do you get to document and witness the beginning of some kind of a legend like that? So um, those, and I didn't know, I, I thought, well, it'd be nice to write another book. But at that point, I really had no idea what else I would write about, honestly. Now, Linda, before, before we get too far past the first book, I did want to ask really quick, uh, because I haven't read it yet. Did you find out the motivation or why the widow killed her husband? Well, the best that I could figure out was that... Um, her lover had been giving her strong hints that he didn't want to finish raising them. And she, I think she thought that she had a better chance with him if the kids just weren't around. And um, it was kind of weird because she, she had arranged this crazy scheme where she planned, the oldest kid was um, 16, was able to drive, and the youngest one was four. And then she had like a 12-year-old, and um, a six or so year old girl and she put them in a car gave them some money told them to go drive out in the country to buy some potatoes because she um, cooked for the girls who lived the college students that lived across the street from her home and gave each of them a giant bonbon candy to eat on the way out now in those days in the 20s Kids didn't just get a big, beautiful piece of candy the way kids do today. You know, it was something really special. They didn't know that she had hollowed them out and filled each one with enough strychnine to kill a horse. And she had watched her husband die and knew how awful the death was and what would take place. The the person who has strychnine, all of your muscles feel like one giant Charlie horse. You're seizing up. And she knew that if they all ate that, her son who was driving would have that kind of a seizure, would go off the road, have an accident. And if the crash didn't kill them, the strychnine would, and people wouldn't even think to look for the strychnine because they would just figure, you know, they were hurt in the crash. Oh, man, that's what an evil person. I mean, who would ever suspect that their mother is giving them something? I mean, my mom gives me something. I eat it. I don't even think twice about it. Right, and this woman was really respected in town. She, her husband, was one of the leaders of the local Methodist church. Um, he had a well-known milk and delivery bus- milk delivery business. Um, she was known for taking food to the sick. You know, um, the husband saying in the quiet. I mean, this was a respected, um, well-known couple. It wasn't you know, anyone you think would be capable of such a thing. So it was kind of a double shot. And the children were wonderful and beautiful, and they all turned out great. Um, it was just her. <laughs> <laughs> and and it gets even weird. I, I mean, I could go on and on. It gets even weirder from that. You know, I did end up tracking down where she went and found out um, that she got out of prison. She had a second life and that they didn't know who she was really or what she did until I came and of course, she was dead, you know, by then, um, and showed them the newspaper and basically said, I know what your granny did last century. <laughs> and uh, 
they wouldn't have believed me if I hadn't had the newspaper. But they did admit they never liked her, but didn't really know why. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's 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 a pretty fascinating story. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt your explanation of the Beast of Bray Road. F- feel free Not to continue, continue with that. I, I think you were just getting to the point where you had told the, the publisher about about the potential work that you that you had started on. Right. And um, about that time, I also had, um, I left the newspaper to begin writing the books um, sometime around that that frame, around 2001, I think. So, yeah, because it was about 10 years that I was at the newspaper. And um, started a little kind of web magazine with my friend Julie Von Bergen. And we were a little bit ahead of our time, you know, but we had all kinds of different writers, and it was where I could post or or put up odd little stories that I found and things like that. And um, I just was fortunate that the guys from the Weird U.S. series um, out in New Jersey, they had started the Weird New Jersey magazine, and then they had the deal with Barnes & Noble to do the State by State series. And um, they asked me and, and uh, um, another, the guy who had the weird, he actually had a weird Wisconsin um, Yahoo group, I think, at the time. And we, they asked us to, co- to co-author the weird Wisconsin book. And then la- later I did the weird Michigan book and sequels to them. And it was because they had seen, um, you know, my, my two books that had come out, but also a lot of it was that little website that had these odd little stories in which were very similar to what they were looking for already. So that that was a, a great big boost for me. And then um, the other thing was that once the Beast of Bray Road came out and it worked pretty well for the publisher, they wanted another book. And so the thing was that when that was published, all these other people began writing to me and telling me what they had seen and I felt like I had this whole new repository of material that had to be printed somewhere. And this was still, I mean, you know, we're talking about 2005, something like that. That's still a good, um, you know, like 12, 13 years ago before we had all of the the online, uh, you know, the Facebook groups that we have now and the subject has exploded. There really weren't that many different venues for it. And so I did um, Hunting the American Werewolf, which rolled together all the, the reports that had come into me. And then um, the Monster Quest show somehow became aware of it, and they did American Werewolf season one um, from based really a lot on that book. Um, if you watch that Monster Quest show... Um, all of those people that we got together and interviewed and that took polygraph tests, and then I might add, all passed with flying colors, which is amazing. And we had more of them than could fit on the show, too. Um, they were all they were all in that book, Hunting the American Werewolf, the ones that we talked to and, and polygraphed. And, and to backtrack a little bit, could... Could you tell us a little bit about the Beast of Bray Road, just a little bit about it? Sure. Um, Like about the creature itself? Yeah. Yeah, well, this was 
you know, when I first started going out and talking to people about it after getting the names from our county control officer who had a manila file folder marked werewolf in his office, um, when I started talking to these people, one of the first things I noticed was they were really quite consistent in describing what they had seen. And I'd say that the huge lion's share of sightings today still are. And most of them describe something that looks like a wolf or a German shepherd standing on its hind legs, um, usually between five and a half and seven feet tall, covered with fur of various colors. Often it's dark, shaggy brown, but people will report gray ones, even once in a while, a white one, black ones. Um, the basic colors that you would normally see in, in any dog or wolf pack. Um, fangs, a long muzzle, pointed ears on top of the head. So those features rule out Bigfoot right there. And then it's just so funny how right to this day, every single witness, if they get a good look at its dog, at its legs, and, and they know that it's a, a dog or a canine, will say, you know, it, it ran really well on its hind legs, but its knees were turned backwards or its legs were turned backwards. And that tells me that they're accurately observing canine legs and feet and not a Bigfoot or a human's or a bear's because the canine mode of transport is digitigrade on their toe pads as if we were walking around on our tiptoes. Um, and that, and if you think, if you're walking around on your tiptoes, your heel is kind of jutting backwards. Well, well their heel, we would call it the hock in an animal, is up off the ground like that and kind of pointing toward the back where we're expecting to see a knee pointing forward. So that's why people always have the impression that their legs are bent backwards. It's just the way, you know, and most people don't really sit and, and think out what the different joints are and, and what they would represent. So, um, And they would also have um, more subjective things to report. So many people were telling me that they felt the creature would just look right at them and either seem really devil-may-care as if it could care less that it, they saw it, or some, sometimes it would um, seem angry that they saw it. There was this real sense of emotion or um, studied carelessness, you know, which is strange to see in an animal out in the wild. And they would feel even sometimes that it would, was going so far as to somehow communicate with them not like in words, but they would get impressions that it was trying to communicate that it could get them if it wanted to, or it could jump on their car. Sometimes it did chase their cars. I had a couple that, you know, showed me scratches on their bumpers that they said were where it kind of leaped at the at the car as it pulled away and, you know, managed to leave some scratches. Where is where is Bray Road and were all of the sightings concentrated on Bray Road? They were in the area. Um, a number of them were on the road, but then there are surrounding roads. And, um, you know, as far as, oh, maybe half an hour away or so at least. And then they started, of course, I learned that they were actually being seen in other parts of Wisconsin, but nobody just ever thought to connect the dots before. Um, it's just that I happened to all of a sudden be sort of a, a focus point where people could write and tell me, and then you could make maps and, and see where they all were. But... Um, they weren't all specifically on Bray Road. There are other roads right out there that are close by. Um, it was, and and you can imagine, there's no reason that any kind of uh, fast-running predator would confine itself 
just to one certain particular road. This road, to answer the first part of that question, is not in Elkhorn. It's just outside. It, it begin, One end of it begins in the outskirts toward the east side of Elkhorn, and it um, kind of zigzags in a northeasterly fashion up to join with Highway 11, which goes to Burlington. Um, so it's on the outskirts of Elkhorn and kind of going about maybe three to four miles um, to the east, to the northeast, actually. Is, is there maybe uh, a concentration of forests or anything like that? Maybe some kind of uh, witch's coven that used to live nearby? Is there anything at all that might be responsible for this? Oh, I've been asking myself that question for 26 years, you know, trying to figure it out. There's not a big concentration of forest. You know, there are trees planted along windbreaks. There's, there are some um, slightly forested areas that are on private land. Most of it, when you drive, drive down the road, you know, you're going to see um, old farmhouses, nicer, newer houses, ranch houses, farm fields. Um, it's not like a big wilderness territory by any means, which is really puzzling to people because they're expecting to drive down this tree-shaded road, you know, with shadows. And um, there's You get an eerie feeling, but it, there's no reason you can usually see for that. You know, um, there are a couple of places. It seems like the sightings tend to concentrate toward either end and then kind of right in the middle. Um, but again, it's a fairly busy road, especially during the day, too, not so much at night, but it's a shortcut from that Highway 11 over to the county hospital. And so a lot of people will take it for that reason. Um, and of course, since, since uh, you know, the book and everything came out those years ago, even now, I don't know how countless people go on Bray Road just to drive down it and say, I drove down Bray Road. Um, I, I constantly try and remind people that it is private property. You can't just stop your car and get out and wander around. And the cops do lurk, and they do charge hefty fines to people. And the people who live there do report trespassers. So, I mean, you really cannot do that. But um, every year, some people still try it, I guess. Are there still um, are there still sightings happening? Yes. Yes, there are. Um Sort of an interesting one, I outlined it. My book that just came out last October called Monsters Among Us, um, that book has a lot of different examples of creatures that do things that are not the 90% simple canine-looking things. They do other things like glow blue or transform or whatever. These are the, um, the oddball sightings that I finally, after many years, decided... Um, there didn't seem to be any big difference between the people who were reporting those and the people who were reporting the other types, and that they really ought to be put together in a book where people could look at those. And I also, um, wherever it was possible, would note whether there were UFO sightings nearby, the moon phase, solar flares, that kind of thing, and put a little chart at the end of the stories that apply. But one big thread that runs through that book is a series of experiments that a property holder who lives in the Bray Road area, not on Bray Road, but out in that area, has been running for three years because uh, his retired physics and math teacher um, 
no slouch, believe me, mentally, very, um, you know, up on his physics and all that kind of thing. And he started noticing weird animal uh, mutilations on his property that he couldn't explain and um, found me somehow, and I've been assisting him ever since to kind of study the things that happen out on his property. And uh, we actually have... um, footage of a coyote doing weird things and then we found out later one of one of his neighbors five minutes after the coyote leaves our trail camera after being there for about six hours straight working on a a deer carcass um, somebody about a half mile down the road had a sighting of a coyote running for deer life for the woods and an upright dog or wolf-like creature with shaggy brown fur chasing it on its hind legs and keeping up with the coyote very <laughs> very handily. And uh, th- this, again, was a February thing, and that was just two years ago. But I've had, I've had other sightings. I've had people report seeing, I've had three different people report seeing uh, what sounds like the cinnamon-colored Bigfoot, where they, two were sort of not, not real close on, uh, it could have gone either way. They, they weren't it wasn't such a good view that they could say for sure that it was a Bigfoot, but it was upright and the right size. But the other one was um, a pretty good daytime sighting that a woman had of one in a ditch. So so there's been that. And then there have been lots of strange light phenomena. I also describe an incident that happened to the property owner and uh, Sanjay Singal and I as we were staking out the, the field as we call it, one night when we were approached by a basketball-sized sphere of unexplainable light that crossed the entire field that we watched it. We watched it come toward us, stop about 30 feet from the car, maybe 25, 30 feet up in the air, and um, Sanjay shined a flashlight on it, and it hesitated. It didn't. It, it waited a minute, not a minute, it waited a, few, a second or two, and then it sort of imploded strangely upon itself. That whole thing is listed, and um, I'm kind of waiting. I may be putting this out sometime soon, or perhaps the property owner will, if he if he wants to be the one. That's great. But he's had some really out there um, personal experiences with a very strange large light that we have, and managed to take two photographs of it, and. Um, we're having that analyzed right now by someone who can analyze the optics. Well, do you have any theories what that orb might have been? Um, I always think of those things as some sort of electromagnetic field or energy, something that's held, held together by electromagnetic energy. That um, It's the second time I've seen something like that in all of my travels. And both times... It seemed aware. I don't know if I want to say sentient because I, that maybe goes a little far, but it seemed aware of us as living presences was was how I felt about it. And um, I, I don't know really how to explain it. You know, I, I, I just really don't. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, so after you wrote The Beast of... Ray Road, I, I take it the, the response was so good that you decided to maybe expand and do a book about werewolves across the whole country? 
Well, yeah, that was Hunting the American Werewolf. It was, and it was, um, you know, it almost wasn't a matter of deciding. It was just that I received so much more material, I felt obligated to put it out there. And so that was the, and the publisher was very happy to have, he was very, he was asking. And so I thought, well, this is a good thing. You know, he wants a book. I can put it all in the book. And then, you know, the, the Monster Quest show came out with it and um, the weird books. And then the other ones all just sort of came along pretty much in the same manner. Um, the American Werewolf garnered more. The third book I did that was sort of like those, although there were others in, in, betwe- in betwixt and between, was the Michigan Dog Man, can- uh, Unknown Canines and Other, or no, excuse me, uh, the Michigan Dog Man, Werewolves and Other Unknown Canines Across the USA. And I might add, the publishers invariably want that word, word werewolf in there because it's so much more evocative than my favorite phrase, which is unknown upright canine. And uh, I can understand that. They're there to sell books, and, and the title a lot of times can make or break a book. And the publisher almost always has the last word on what the title is. A lot of people don't realize that. But in the traditional publishing world, that's how it works. So that's why those titles are what they are. Um, but then um, I was uh, contacted by an editor at the Tarcher Publishers, and um, he asked me to do a book that incorporated the best of those three books, The Beast of Bray Road, Hunting the American Werewolf, and The Michigan Dog Man, and put the best of those books with the additional new ones that I'd gathered since then, and that became um, Real Wolfmen. Uh, and that was followed by American Monsters and now Monsters Among Us, and the new one, which, you know, the title is, is uh, undecided yet. But um, so that, it, in all, and, and I had um, a novel that doesn't have anything to do with werewolves, a fantasy novel, published there in the meantime, and a couple other ones. So I think I think the one that I'm doing now is the 18th. So were, Something you, like that. were you shocked after you, after you wrote The Beast of Bray Road and you started getting all these different accounts being sent to you were you shocked about how much there was yes yeah i mean i remember talking about it with the editor and and uh, and i mean you know there was obviously a little bit of hesitation um you know on on our both our parts because we knew it was going to sound weird you know we knew it was going to attract um some kind of strange attention but we decided that people around this locale would have fun with it for a few weeks and then it would it would become like a a joke a local joke of some kind or or whatever and then it would just die down and that would be it so uh we were wrong (laughs) (laughs) quite wrong so so uh you know i've always associated werewolves with europe like i always think of those old paintings and the old stories and things like that but it's not really just the old world that has werewolves. They're actually quite common in America, right? Well, um, you know, I, I, I said right right in the first book, and I still say it, I don't believe in the traditional werewolves per se. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the medieval, I mean, there were people who were pretty weird and, and iffy um, in Europe 
um, during those uh, witchcraft trials. Um, and you had the Beast of Jevedon, which people are still arguing about what that was. Yeah, where people that's a were fascinating actually getting one. killed. Yeah, I mean, hundreds of, of people and animals. And and um, the, di- the big difference is that these creatures today, now there are a few specially known incidents where um, it's claimed that people were killed, but uh, we can't definitively prove it. The land between the lakes is one, you know, that's been sort of contested, and, and there are a couple others, but for the for the most part, and for my own part, for 26 years, and I still get sightings. Report. I mean, I still get, you know, maybe one to three a week, um, which is a lot over the years. I have not seen anything where the, the creature does anything except, in, in some instances, it's killed a person's dog or trying to take their cat or whatever. In one case, it kind of accidentally grazed a man's side with its uh, fangs as it was leaving, but it didn't really, you know, he said he thought if it wanted to get him, it certainly could have. That was up in Quebec. And that's it. Normally, when people are sure it's about to kill them, it runs off into the woods or um, behind a rock or just goes somewhere that they don't that they don't see. And, so, and that's something that dogs can do because I've had experiences with dogs where, uh, it, like as a warning, it will run up to me, jump on me, and bite my arm, but just do do it enough that it hurts like hell, but not enough to puncture the skin or break it. Right, right. Yeah, it's that. It's almost like a territorial aggression. Like, you know, this is my domain. You shouldn't be out here. You know, get out of here. That's and, and even on the roads, you know, by the, they, it's like they're claiming their right to sit there in the in the ditch and eat roadkill without being disturbed. You know, or run across the road. And sort of dare the cars to hit it. So it's like it's got this too, this big attitude. <laughs> and and I just hear that from people over and over and over again. Could some of these upright dogs be actual shapeshifters? Well, there are subsets of descriptions. And one of those subsets... Um, involves something that looks like it's part human. You know, canines don't have shoulders, really. They can have, if something's um, using its upper limbs in ways that it shouldn't, like it's carrying a deer or or something in its upper limbs, sure, it might develop upper limb muscles that you wouldn't normally see on a dog, but they're still not real shoulders. But um, especially when it comes to certain Native American reservations, um, out in Navajo territory, that's a, a big one. Um, they will look like dogs, but they're, they may have an article of clothing on. They may have shoulders. They may have hands, real hands instead of paws. Um, people will often report elongated paws with claws when they're looking, when they get a close up look at a dog man. But these things that, um, many who live there would believe were, are shapeshifters. Um, which is believed by the Navajo and some other Native Americans to be a form of malevolent witchery, um, occult ritual that is used and learned over many years to project a form or to sort of project the image of one of these creatures around you is the way it's often explained. Um, you know, that's what they think they are, uh, shapeshifters, and there are different different terms for them, skinwalkers, one that a lot of people use, Um there are still, and it's not just confined to the wolves, um, up in UP, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, 
Um, there are still people practicing what they call the bear walk, which is a similar thing, but um, they're bears that are supposed to be part human. And that might ac account for some Bigfoot sightings, perhaps, if that's real. Um, you know, I can imagine yeah. those two things being mistaken for one another, if there's humanoid along with the bear. Could they be demonic beings? A lot of witnesses have said that. It's not at all unusual for somebody to, for somebody to say, I felt this was like a demon or a demonic sort of thing. Um, probably the strongest story in terms of it seeming the most likely to be, you know, called demonic um, is in that New Monsters Among Us book where um, just this ordinary mom and dad who belonged to kind of a conservative um evangelical sort of church in Illinois and their son and daughter who were in church with them and about 200 people who were also attending services but who didn't have as good a look because they weren't sitting next to and across to the person who did it but they witnessed a woman transform before their eyes um, from this just very average nondescript you could barely remember how to describe her sort of person into a full-fledged seven-foot-tall, gray-furred, werewolf-looking thing, and um, howling, you know, making this shrieking noise that everybody did hear and was looking around to see what it was. And according to the story, they said their um, ushers were up in the front of the church and kind of pinned, pinned immediately all dove for it and pinned it down on a church pew, and it immediately transformed back. And, I mean, that sounds so way out. Um, I asked them to sign affidavits that they were giving me true and factual things. And they gave me a lot of background information of little things, you know, that all checked out. By the way, the, the church is no longer there for some reason. It was, uh, it did not remain. And the uh, video that was always taken of the Sunday service for shut-ins to view disappeared. Um, but... Enough connections were made that, you know, I was satisfied. They, I met with them face-to-face -face and pretty much grilled them um, for a couple of hours each time, and I just never got any sense. They both told the same story. They both drew, they, they drew uh, sketches, you know, of the same thing. And they said it had been, I think, over a decade since it happened, and it, bo it still bothered them so much. They were telling me just because they wanted other people to know about it. They didn't want... They wanted to be anonymous, you know, which I always offer to people because I'd rather have the report than than not. Um, but so they didn't want anything from it, no fame. Um, they just wanted others to know that this sort of thing could happen. Yeah, what's so what's so interesting about the whole shape shifting and werewolf thing, especially the possible connection to black magic or the occult? I, I can't help but feel. Like there's this huge similarity here to David Icke's work, David Icke, David Icke, however you say his name, where he talks about these people transforming into large reptilian beings. And he actually says that the British royal family are these hybrid aliens where they can suddenly transform into giant reptilians. I mean, when you hear about the werewolves and you hear about this, neither one seems quite as unbelievable as it might seem at first because you see the same phenomena in other paranormal fields. 
Yeah, that's true. It's it's not completely unusual. You know, I I have no idea. I, I will say the British royals have adorable grandchildren. You know, if they're really lizards, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you can't tell. But um, I I don't know. I I have had people report seeing lizard men to me. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. But, but they didn't they didn't see them transform or anything. You know, they just looked like a humanoid covered with scales. Um, in one case, it had just crawled out of a river in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Um, and then there were there was a truckload of highway workers and a state patrolman that saw a similar creature standing in the middle of the highway, uh, Highway 13, up in northern Wisconsin, um, on separate occasions. I mean, the patrolman wasn't with the the uh, the, the, the um, highway highway workers, excuse me. But they both described the same thing. Was this humanoid, man-sized creature covered with scales standing there looking at them from the middle of the highway and when they got close it snapped these wings out from its shoulders or its back or whatever and then just kind of soared up and away from the highway and I've had one of those man-bat things also reported from the La Crosse area and it's interesting because if you, I looked at the map and I thought well that just seems almost too too close to be true, and even though these uh, these things happened um, some years apart, La Crosse is where the Mississippi uh, meets the Black River. The Black River snakes kind of northeasterly up into northern Wisconsin and ends up right about where that other thing was seen. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I've I've heard that before that some of the upper more elite cast members of the reptilian race, they actually have wings and they're able to fly. So maybe it was one of those. Who knows? Yeah, it's hard to... And they're described as bat-like wings in this case, which, again, you know, there's this Chicago thing going on right now where the wings are described as bat-like. And, um, I mean, I've lost track. Again, um, Lon Strickler Strickler, uh, from the uh, Monsters... Oh, I'm going to mess up his title of his... He's got a very very well known radio show and also the uh, the blog his daily blog and he's been keeping track of these and at least eight or nine sightings and I know there had been others a few years ago I talked about them again in the uh, American Monsters book where people were seeing these things right downtown Chicago and they've been uh, I think the latest ones were over Logan Square in the city and that's a place where uh, my youngest son went to the School of the Art Institute. Of Chicago, so he lived down there, and he lived in Logan Square at one time. But what are they? Why are these people seeing them? They they don't seem to the people who view them that they're like hang gliders, or they're wearing these glider suits, um, you know, or any of the new technology for uh, human recreational use. So they but, saw them just flying overhead. Is that is that how it yeah. was? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, and in different places and over roofs and. Um, Sometimes more more than one witness on on many occasions. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't doubt it at all. It's my understanding that these sightings go way back. Uh, even Mothman, I believe, some people were reporting that Mothman looked like a reptilian. Yeah, there were different descriptions of of the Mothman. If you if you read all of them, um, so it, who's to say? It's it's hard hard to tell. Have you ever considered maybe writing a book about reptilian sightings? 
to be honest, they actually give me the creeps so much that I I really don't think I would. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Just including a couple of them, you know, as examples. Um, for instance, again, not to mention the Monsters Among Us book, but I do have a chapter about the lizard people of Los Angeles, which is actually fairly well known in Los Angeles, but I think not other places. I had never heard of it. Well, what's but, this all about? Well, there were supposed to be um, caverns in tunnels underneath the city of Los Angeles that, uh, according to this man who um, showed up and claimed that he was um, a, a scientist of some sort and that he had um, a Native American chieftain with him and that he had this machine that could see beneath the the street surface and, and way down into the earth to tell where these caverns were. Um, and the caverns were supposed to be filled with, with uh, gold treasures and with food stores and were supposed to have been made by um, a race of, na- not a race, but a, a special band of Native Americans. And they were known as the Lizard People. And they were supposedly um, much technologically advanced from the other people. This was supposed to be like 3,000 years ago. And that they had a technique where they could bore out solid rock by using a certain kind of super strong um, dissolver, solvent, rather than having to chip away, you know, and hew out caverns that way. And supposedly um, this... They, the caverns took a lizard shape, and the head was up where the L.A. Public Library was, and the tip of the tail was supposed to be down, uh, or maybe I've got it backwards, was by the Elysian Fields Park. Anyway, um, the city of Los Angeles actually gave him a permit to drill in what he thought was the likeliest place, and he drilled and drilled and drilled, never came up with anything, so they told him to quit, um, didn't want him to start causing earthquakes or anything like that. And uh, the two of them just kind of vanished, um, in, again, out into history. Um, but it leaves you wondering, because this was, um, you know, way back, probably 80 years ago, before you had all these cable shows about ancient aliens. And it was not a big popular view. It was before Eric von Daniken's books and all these other things came out. And so you wonder where these people got this idea that there were these lizard people with advanced technology that were able to bore out these caverns through special techniques and have all this these food stores and wonderful things. Um, uh, the, I guess the idea was that these people thought there was going to be a big uh, cataclysm or something, and this was where they would go to save themselves. Yeah, that's interesting for sure. I've I've heard similar tells of there being uh, all kinds of underground bases and networks of tunnels and, and things like that. And, and they always seem to be associated with these reptilian beings. So, so who knows? I mean, it, there's a lot of evidence out there pointing to there could be something down there. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's circumstantial evidence, of course. I mean, we can't prove, but I mean, um, I've had, Rumors from people that there are werewolves seen in Minot, North Dakota. And the whole United States, most of the major, even some of the minor towns, um, are honeycombed beneath them with tunnels. Just If you just took the tunnels that are left from um, 
the steam age alone when you had most large buildings and sanitariums and schools and factories, things like that, any kind of complex um, heated by steam, you would need these subterranean steam tunnels. A lot of the northern towns, we have many of these in Wisconsin, had a second downtown buried beneath the, the street level um, where there were stairs going down into them. Oshkosh has a lot of them left. There's a wonderful book called um, Down Under Osh, or Oshkosh Down Under, it is, which documents, you know, with photos where all these tunnels led, um, you know, across streets. People could go because in the winter, uh, in the snow regions, they didn't used to have really efficient, fast means of plowing big dumps of snow, you know, and, and bad weather. So if people could enter one part and then walk around, uh, you know, from tunnel to tunnel and get into various stores from their lower levels that way. Um, abandoned subways. Uh, Los Angeles alone has abandoned subways galore. Um, all kinds of other utility Tunnels um, are necessary where you don't have uh, land that's suitable for basements. So it, yeah, it's not it's, it's, here, it's like that here in Seattle, too. There's an old an old Seattle that's actually buried underneath the, the new current Seattle. There's even homeless people that know how to get down there. There you go. Yeah, exactly. There's Madison, Wisconsin, by the UW campus. Um, there are great numbers of tunnels under there. Again, mostly steam tunnels uh, for that purpose that are, are just there. And um, there have been a homeless person or two that sort of gained celebrity for being able to sneak around and stay in those tunnels despite um, the security's desperate attempts to root them out. And they, <laughs> one, of, one of the guys, they just started paying him to change the light bulbs for them. So they'd leave some money in the light bulbs, and he'd go down and screw the light bulbs in and take the old ones out so they wouldn't have to do it. Linda, what do you think of the idea? I'm asking this because this is something that is being passed around a lot. But what do you think of the idea that there were once giant humans that walked the planet? Well, the Bible tells us that's real. I'm a Christian. Um, I believe that. And... You know, it's hard to say, I mean, what's a giant? You know, we, Robert Wadlow, I think, was over eight feet tall. He was the, the giant boy of, of Illinois, from Alton, Illinois. Um, if you go to the town square of Alton, they've got a replica, a, a, life, a size, perfectly sized replica of a chair that was made for him to sit in. And somewhere I've got posted a picture of me sitting in that chair. I look like little Edith Ann. You know, Lily Tom, Tomlin doing that Edith Ann thing that she used to do of the little kid sitting in the, in the big chair. <laughs> You're probably too young to remember. But, but, uh, he was over eight, I think he was eight foot seven, something like that. They had to special make his shoes and everything. Um, he had that growth hormone, growth hormone, um, malady that, that sometimes, I can't think of the name of it right offhand. But, um, if you found his bones, you would certainly consider him a giant. Um, I don't know. And, and the Bible says there were giants, men of old, men of that we now know as men of renown. They, they were famous for the deeds that they did. So, um, and, and we do have, if you look at all, there are plenty of books dedicated to this and, and all over the Internet. Um when settlers came 
to this country, and even before the settlers, the fur trappers and such, they noticed the thousands and thousands of mounds left, especially around the Midwest, but really all over the country, um, that were built by what was called the mound builder culture. And many of them were opened and found to contain, um, not always, sometimes there would just be one or two, but very what were considered very oversized people for that time. They would usually be at least seven feet tall. Um, oftentimes their heads would be dis- described as misshapen or flattened, and it wasn't from cradle boarding. It was a different type of, it appeared to be just normal, with huge jaws, sometimes double rows of teeth. And there were some mounds like that right here in Walworth County. There's uh, Some are still there. Um, they opened them up, and some of the people were just the regular stature of most of the Native American burials that had been around them, but they found several men who fit those descriptions with the double rows of teeth and all. And uh, these have been found all over the country. In most cases, they were given to a museum, which gave them to the Smithsonian or some other place, and they've pretty much just disappeared. It's a big missing bone phenomena, missing missing skeletons. And um, being that you are somebody that has heard a lot of accounts of mysterious, strange creatures and things like that, have you ever heard of something similar happening where somebody saw something and then maybe some black helicopters showed up or even somebody came along and told them they better not tell anybody? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I know people that's happened to. Um, it happened to me actually once. A couple what? Of years, <laughs> yeah, a couple of years ago. Uh, I mean, it's just too much to be coincidence. There was um, a report of a Bigfoot sighting in uh, Clark County, which is, again, that kind of middle, very close to Hillsboro, where I was telling you about the big cat being seen in, in Waniwak that was in the Hillsboro paper. This is a place called uh, Wildcat Mountain Park, and my grandparents used to take us there for picnics when we were kids. There's a very tall cliff, and it's very rugged territory. People... Um, uh, raised ginseng in there, and there was a pretty good daylight sighting where the Bigfoot was right near the ditch and was trying to get away out of sight, but the person had a good look at him, and um, they claimed that they went in, and somebody else reported seeing a man in a ghillie suit at some point at some part of the park, but it wasn't the same place. And I did call that sheriff, you know, and I said, what was the what was the place where the other person who saw the ghillie suit was. And he wouldn't tell me, because then he would have had to admit it wasn't the same spot. And um, I was just trying to get some more, politely get some more information out of him. And the next morning, I think it was a Saturday, and my husband and our little grandson and I happened to be in our living room standing by the picture window that overlooked our backyard with the woods and such, that kind of dropped off down into the kettles, the one I described earlier where my husband was stalked by the the mountain lion. And we heard what sounded like this helicopter super close. And all of a sudden, up out of this this helicopter just came, like, lifting up, just like you see in the movies. It was not marked. Um, Lifting up, zoomed over our backyard, and barely cleared the roof on our house. And that's illegal. I mean, it was way too low 
to have been legal for it to do that. And this was the very next day. And it was when we were all standing in front of the picture window, and it just did it once and went out of sight, didn't come back, did not do that to anybody else's house. Um, there were plenty of other houses in that street. It wasn't acting like it was looking for anything. But, um, you know, I just have to think, hmm, you poke around, you ask questions, and the next day you get buzzed by an unmarked helicopter in your home. Yeah, that sounds like some kind of warning. Yeah, that's how I took it. Could be coincidence, you know, I have no way to prove it, but it did happen. Has anybody ever reported to you the men in black showing up? Um, I've had people who, who thought that, you know, occasionally. It's kind of interesting. I, I don't think I've ever had any, you know, dogman witnesses that felt they were harassed that way. But when, one really weird thing did happen once when it was day, daytime. And I was out on Bray Road with a film crew from one of the TV shows. I don't even remember which one it was. And um, a, a couple friends of mine that I, I did hiking with uh, were out there, too, at the same time. Todd Roll and, and uh, Richard Hendricks, who co-authored the Weird Wisconsin book, and the film crew. And um, I happened to be standing closest to the road at one point, and the guys were kind of back in the woods a little bit. We had permission, by the way. Um getting filmed and this big black boat of a cruiser's type car with tilted windows came driving it turned off of Bray Road and onto Hospital which is where we were standing and uh, pulled over you know just pulled up and stopped in the middle of the road and there was this kind of older woman at the wheel who had what looked like a black wig on and honest to goodness, she had like a Russian-sounding accident or accent. And she said, um, is something wrong? May I help you? And we're like, oh, no, we're good. We're just filming, you know. And she's, well, may I help you? It was just so odd. And I've lived, I lived around Elkhorn for 30-some years, and I had never met anybody quite like her. It was just really, really how she lingered and didn't want to go and how she was looking at everybody just so strangely and then eventually just rolled up the windows and rolled away and and didn't come back. Yeah, that does sound very similar to other stories I've heard of people uh, experiencing gang stalking and uh, you know warnings and stuff like that. Somebody will pull up mysteriously in a car, they'll have a strange accent, and they'll keep yeah. saying, can I help you, in almost a threatening sort of way. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I'm not sure it was a real accent. It reminded me of Boris Badenov in the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. <laughs> if, you're, if you've ever seen those, again. Oh, yeah, Boris to, and Natasha. Yeah, Boris and Natasha. Doll, you know, they're those, those real heavy dramatic, um, you know, kind of fake accents. That's what she sounded like. Now, do you do you feel that the government might be covering up the existence of some of these creatures? And, and if so, why? That has certainly occurred to me. You know, part of it is that so many people are just ridiculed when they go and report. You know, a lot of people, when they see something like these creatures, 
they're just good citizens. They figure this is dangerous and I should tell someone and they'll go and report it to the authorities and then they're just made fun of or it's put away or they'll be just told to forget about it or don't, you know, just it's nothing, you know, or it was a coyote. They're seeing a seven foot tall bipedal walking dog man and they're told it's no, that's just a 36 pound coyote. You know, you just imagine it in your mind. So there's that. And then, um, you know, there's the fact that I've had a great number of um, former law enforcement officers from different, from sheriff's deputies, policemen, military, all tell me that, um, you know, they were sort of trained not to talk about these things to people. And, in fact, one, you know, that I'm actually friends with, I know him really well, I know he's not, you know, um, putting me on with this. He said they actually were told to tell people, um, you know, I, I went out there, I took a, lo- a look at it, I didn't find anything, and that's what they would write in their report. They would go out, show up, you know, swing their head around a couple times, and then just say, I didn't find, I looked and I didn't find anything. So that tells you, and, and to be, to be fair, I mean, there are some logical reasons they might do that. I mean, if you get a lot of people, if you get sort of a monster mania going on and all of a sudden hundreds of people are running out to see where the Black Panther was or whatever, or the Bigfoot or whatever, you can have crowds that may need um, control or patrolling. You may see people with guns. You have to worry about that. Um, you're going to have to pay extra to, to patrol those areas. If somebody, um, you know, does declare that there's an unknown animal or even says it's such a thing as a wolf, which would be a protected animal, then you get into other divisions and it becomes a money and manpower thing, you know. And I do think that happens sometimes, too. It's a big headache for law enforcement when you get something like that going. So there's there's two sides to that issue. But on the other hand, um, you know, it's just not necessary. Well, there's also the classic case Here's another one. Um, the Paranormal Witness TV show um, took one of the stories from my book, uh, Real Wolfman, um, where it's called, it, I titled it this and they kept the title, The Maine Wolf Pack, where this couple in Maine were sitting on their porch one night of their rented farmhouse and felt something was wrong, turned on the big floodlight, and there were um, several, I'm thinking, I'm thinking five right now in my mind, um, upright wolfmen they could see were seven feet tall because of what they were standing under, flanking them with some coming from one side, the others coming from the other side, and they were quite close. And they just were able to back into the house in time, and they called 911. 911 took their call and advised them to call animal control. They did that. Oh, God. And the animal control said, well, just stay in your house, lock the doors, and you know, wait till morning, which they did. And the creatures stayed outside their house, right close outside their house, all night. They said they could, uh, I mean, of course they barely slept. And they said they could look down up from the upstairs windows and see the um, the yellow eyes staring back up at them. You know, and the, the light from the flashlights that they beamed down on, on the creatures. So um, when it came time to uh, investigate that, um I asked the couple to go and, and see if they could get the recording of that 911 call. And guess what? They didn't have it. I tried to personally get it. I talked to them. I talked to people in the local library and other 
other other sources had no luck, and even um, paranormal witness also tried to get the 911 recording and was not able to. Um, that's supposed to be available by law, and it was not. Something happened to that. Linda, do you have any advice for any of my listeners out there that might be aspiring writers that that might be thinking about writing their first book. Do you have any advice for them? Wow, um, <laughs> uh, it it's you know it's just hard. The, all the different types of books that are coming out in the field now are are so different. Actually, you know, most times people ask, "Well, how do I find out things to write about?" You know, if I want my own, I want to do my own research. I want you know something fresh and, and that's my my own. And um, what I generally tell them is, really, the best place to look is probably your own backyard because there doesn't seem to be anywhere in the U.S. that doesn't have some sort of legend, some sort of sightings. Um, You know, and you can go, we have these really great um, online repositories now from um, BFRO and other groups of Bigfoot sightings and creature sightings where you can look up your own state and county and see what's there. You can watch watch the newspapers in your area for, um, you know, a little little. Usually there will be little news stories when something odd is sighted. You can uh, search in all kinds of different ways. Go and, um, you know, post online. Start your own group. But starting in your own backyard, that's what happened to me. This was all, you know, really right in my own neighborhood when this all began and it gives you a leg up because you're there you can go on foot you can witness things firsthand which has a real impact and and i think uh gives a lot more uh life to a book than if you're just writing about things you know secondhand far away so start in your own backyard and um try and make it have make your book have sort of a uh, let there be a reason you know that that this book needs to be written so that you have a motivation because it may be um, a long hard haul to get something like this researched and and written. I know um, overall, you know, from those 10 years I was at the newspaper and collecting stories, it was, you know, years years in the process of of my first book, both of my first books. Both my, that doesn't make sense, my first book and my second book, The Poison Widow and The Beast of Bray Road. So don't be discouraged if it takes some time, you know, kind of be prepared to be in it for the long haul if necessary. Uh, and just remember, anything worthwhile takes time and and uh, isn't probably going to be easy. Just, you know, keep at it. All right. I think that's good advice. Unfortunately, we are approaching the end of the interview, but I want to go ahead and just open things up for you, Linda. If you'd like to get on the soapbox one more time and talk about anything you'd like to talk about and feel free to follow that up with any plugs that you may have. Sure. Well, um Again, I, I would like to mention that, um, you know, I am speaking in Portland, Maine, and that is available online. You can find a link. If you go to lindagodfrey.com, that's my blog. That's where I put a lot of stories that uh, don't get in the books for some reason. Sometimes they just they come out too late. They, they're, they're not suitable. Um, they just are more of a blog-type story than a book-type story. So you'll find my, my blog of, of uh, stories and my own personal experiences, too, in there. You will find you can find a book list, um, bio, lots of other things that are in there. But there is there is a link to uh, the event organized by Lauren Coleman, which, which should be uh, 
great fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And other places that, that I have, you can also find um, some recent podcasts. I try to, to put up notes. You can send me send me your link when you get it ready, and I'll put that up there on the page, the link to this podcast. So just lindagodfrey.com. It's very easy to remember. I'm also on Twitter. You can find the link to that there. And Facebook page, too, also both. Everything's at lindagodfrey.com. Okay, awesome. And Linda, thanks so much for joining me this evening. And I'd definitely like to catch up with you again in the future. Sure, anytime. It was a pleasure. And until then, you have a good night. Thank you. You too. Bye. Good night. And thanks to all your listeners. Yeah, thanks again. (laughs) You're welcome. And that was Linda Godfrey, one of my favorite guests, of course. She is absolutely fascinating to listen to. I highly recommend you go and pick up her books. We're going to go ahead and take a break. I need to use the bathroom and freshen up a little bit. I'm going to play a little music and we'll be right back. we got tons of stuff to talk about, so I'll see you for our wrap-up period. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the end of days. This is Daniel coming at you after our break, coming at you once again from the drizzly Pacific Northwest. How are you guys doing? Oh, what a week it's been. I'm so tired. I'm so worn out. Oh, yikes. There's been so much that has happened. And I'm going to go ahead and start things off. And talk about the elephant in the room, which was last show. As many of you are aware, we were supposed to do a show. Let's see, when was it? Last Saturday night. But there was a problem. As many of you know, scheduled for that show was a gentleman named Wolfman Mike. Now, now, you guys, if you've listened to this show for a long time... If you've been listening for years and years, you probably know who Wolfman Mike is. He's he names himself after Wolfman Jack. He he's a Canadian guy. He he does that flat earth song, which is why I I wanted to bring him on because that song was so funny and he's such an entertaining character. So, Wolfman Mike, he's got his own show called Monster Castle Paranormal and I was doing a theme this month where I was having on a lot of other podcasters. It was just my way of saying thank you and trying to give back and trying to cross-promote and trying to help out some of the other guys out there that, uh, you know, it helps them, it helps me. It seems like a good thing, right? I mean, rather than be a a competitive douchebag about it, why don't we all help each other, right? So that was kind of my mentality going in. So I know Wolfman Mike, and even though he's kind of done some questionable things in the past, I still wanted to bring him on. And by questionable things... Um, One thing that he would do is he would call into our show and he would just linger on the line. And when me and my co-host thought that he was long gone, later on when we had a guest on, he would suddenly chime in. So he was doing something that was a little bit sneaky, I guess you could say. He He was doing something that wasn't totally straightforward with us at the time. And... 
you know, I it kind of run me the wrong way. Um, I felt like a lot of his stories might have been made up as well, or they were made up. I know his stories were made up. So those two things kind of annoyed me, but I still wanted to bring him on because, hey, Wolfman Mike is funny. I want to talk to him. I want to bring him on. We could put together a good show. We could talk about Flat Earth. I could interview him. So I invite him on. No, actually, that's not how it went. Let me think here. So before I even invited him on, he had sent me a message saying saying his wife had passed and he's really sad. And he, he asked me if if he could get some advice from me or he wanted to talk to me. So, you know, of course I'm going to talk to the guy. I mean, oh my God, his wife just passed. I can't imagine a more horrible thing to happen to somebody. Like I felt awful. Like what can I do, right? What can I do to make you feel better or distract you? What can I do? That was my main question at that point. So I meet up with him. I don't have a problem. Um, He wants to meet up on Skype. So I'm not physically meeting up with him. I'm just meeting him on Skype at a certain time. So I I say, yeah, sure. In fact, uh, you can call in my show. It's on earlier. So the day comes and he calls in later in the show, which is cool and everything. And he's like, we're going to meet up later, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, f- yeah, of course, we'll talk for sure. So I finish doing my show and I jump back on Skype. And I'm like, Wolfman, what's up? And turns out I'm live on his show now after he picked up on me. Now I'm live on Mountain Monster Castle Paranormal. He didn't tell me about it. I, I felt like he kind of set me up, right? But, you know, who cares? That's just Wolfman. That's his thing. That's how that's his humor. You know, don't don't be an asshole. Just go with the flow. Be nice. Ha- try to have fun. That's what I'm telling myself, right? And, and plus the guy's wife just died. So, I mean, whatever. He gets a pass, right? But, it, of course, it run me the wrong way. I felt a little bit set up. It felt like the same stuff that he was doing before where he would linger on the phone line. And I know that he's done similar things to other shows like Amy Martin's show. I forget what it's called, Amy on the radio or something like that. But I know he he's done similar. Th- I don't know what exactly he's done, but I heard rumors of him calling that show and pranking them and maybe doing it to other shows too. Or maybe pranking isn't the right word. Like, he'll call and he'll start playing his guitar and singing and stuff like that. You know, it's supposed to be funny. A lot of times it is, but it's kind of a hijacking, interruptive sort of style of getting yourself out there, I guess you could call it. But anyways, we're not to that. We're not to that yet. So I'm sorry if I'm boring the crap out of any of you guys out there. I hope this is... uh, The thing is, a lot of you are going to want to know what happened because we had a show schedule. We didn't do it. So I'm explaining... So, oh God. <laughs> so I'm planning to do the show with Wolf and Mike. We decide on a date and time and everything. And you know, as per usual, a couple days before the show, I make a cool looking pro- promotional graphic. It says, it says end of days radio versus Monster Castle Paranormal. And I just put verses there, not that we're at odds with each other, but to kind of hype it up like it's a fight or something. Like these two shows are coming together. And I found out that might have been a mistake to even frame it that way at all. So the days come in. I send him uh, an email just saying, hey, hey, Wolfman, what's up? Uh, Looking forward to our interview. And I even got on this uh, other thing that he has, this chat program. And I got on there just to test it out and say hi and everything. And 
couple days before, like I was saying, I emailed him and I said, oh, is everything cool? Is it going to be ready? He's like, yeah, looking forward to it. Okay, great. Uh, I even text, exchanged texts the same day. He's saying, looking forward to tonight. And I'm like, yeah, awesome. Can't wait. And that's really how I felt. I was excited about it. I mean, Wolfman Mike isn't a big name. He's not going to draw a crowd to the show. He's not going to get ratings. And that's fine. I'm not going for that. I'm not going for the big ratings or getting the tons of listens or views or download or anything like that. So I was, I was cool with it. Like, let's do this. I want to help you promote your show. Let's do it. So the day comes, the day and time comes. Sorry. We had exchanged text earlier, same day that we're supposed to do this interview. So the time comes, we sit down, I start up the show, bring on Wolfman Mike, and I start answering him questions. I start asking him questions. Sorry, I'm really worn down. So I start asking him questions, and right away, it just, it feels like bullshit. I mean, it's the same stories that he was telling before, seeing the tree face in the woods, um, saying how he was doing seances when he was a little kid, stuff like that. It just, it sounds really unbelievable. I'm not saying that it's impossible or there's no way any of it's true, but it just sounded so unbelievable. I mean, come on, you're doing seances when you're five years old and you and your brother are seeing the trees form into a face with a feather, a hat made out of white feathers, (laughs) however that went. And what was frustrating me was, it was like, I realized rather quickly that his story was falling apart. Like it was com- becoming completely unraveled. First he says he's here, then he says he's there. And it's like he's making up facts as he goes. And, you know, I'm, I'm a smart guy. I clued into this right away. But I didn't want to screw things up. So it, it almost turned into me trying to kind of hide hide the line. You know what I mean? Like structure the interview so it makes sense or we'll maybe we'll stay away from that particular subject but that makes me feel awful because this show is supposed to be about the truth and here i am i feel like i'm helping a guy lie and that's not what i'm about i don't you know as soon as that happened already i'm getting that feeling in my gut like oh god like oh this just is not going well and then all of a sudden wolfman says to me daniel is it okay if i start my show in simulcast and I'm thinking to myself, well, I, you know, I, I don't really see the reason for that. I'm already having you on the show. I'm already helping you promote yourself and get exposure. But you know what? Whatever. I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to be a control freak. You know what? Go ahead. Run your stream. It doesn't really matter to me. And then he says, well, I'm not going to start my stream until 9 o'clock. It was like 8 35 at this point and i'm thinking what the hell and i say to him i say why don't you just start it right now we've already begun why don't you just start your stream right now and he says oh i he says in his goofy canadian accent he goes oh i i I don't want to start at this time i start like to start at the certain time this is this is how i do things i like to start exactly on the hour and i'm like what difference does it make just start it now so i don't like doing it that way i don't really do it Okay, whatever, Wolfman, fine. Go ahead, we'll continue, and you can start your your show in the middle of my show at 9 o'clock. Ugh. So now that's two things, right? Or three or four, or how many awful things we're up to at this point. So we're, we're still continuing. Then he says, Daniel, did you... This might have happened before the discussion I just talked about, the conversation I just talked about. I think this actually happened right away. 
as soon as we got on air. He said, Daniel, did you see that picture that I made to promote the interview? And I'm like, what? I already made. I'm thinking to myself. I'm not saying I'm thinking to myself. I'm thinking, I already made a promotional poster. What is he talking about? Why would he make his own promotional poster? I already made one for us. Just retweet it. Post it. Use it. Why would you do more work, right? I mean, that's how I think. I, I think you don't do the same work twice. That's the way I think. So, you know, work smart, not hard sort of mentality. That's my mentality. So, so uh, I, I go into Twitter and I look at it and it's, it's a poster. I don't even look at the poster yet, but I immediately see all these hashtags attached. Uh, hashtag Dark Matter Network. Hashtag Coast to Coast AM. Hashtag Amy Martin. Hashtag such and such other shows, hashtag such and such other network. It's like he took all these other shows and networks and put hashtags of them attached to that poster he made. So people that are into those other shows will find what we're doing. Problem is we have nothing to do with those shows. I certainly don't. I don't have anything to do with dark matter network or coast to coast. And, you know, I like Amy and everything, but I don't want her to see that. I don't want her to, go into Twitter and see me attaching my show's name to a hashtag about her show. I mean, think about how that looks. That looks so lame. It looks like you're trying to bite off of them. It's, it's like you're trying to ride their coattails or trying to, you're so desperate. You'll try to take any of their listeners that you can in a very spammy hijacking in your face sort of way. Right. Because I put one hashtag on my stuff. That's hashtag EODR. I don't have to put, other shows hashtags in my promotional stuff. So already I'm, I'm having issue with this. I'm like a uh, wolf, man, what, what are you doing, man? Uh, why would you do this? What, what is the style of marketing? He's saying, Oh, I'm affiliate of those shows. I always do that. I'm affiliate of them. I'm like, why does it say Amy Martin hashtag Amy Martin on here? It didn't say that it was like Amy on the radio or something like that. And he's saying, Oh, we were friends. We were friends. We were, Friends and we were thinking about starting shows, and he he paints this picture like they're high school buddies, and they were they both had big dreams of starting their own podcast, and you know it just sounds like complete bullshit because almost everything he says is bullshit. So I'm going to assume whatever he's saying is bullshit, right? But whatever, I'm already completely losing my shit, but I'm staying in control of my temper. I'm I'm holding it down, and I just say okay, whatever. Let's just keep going. <laughs> uh, I should have just pulled out at that point. <laughs> and I'm sorry if I sound like a jerk at all, but really that's not the case. I was really being driven up a wall. I think most of you should understand where I'm coming from. So, <laughs> you know, this is a guy who supposedly his wife just died. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not going to comment on that and say he's lying because if he's not, that would be incredibly disrespectful to that person who passed on. So I'm not going to say that, but yeah, do I have my doubts now? Sure, I sure as heck do. And you're going to find out why. Uh, not that there was any direct evidence, but <laughs> there was more lying that's that you're going to hear about. So um, where was I? Okay. So we're continuing forward. I'm letting the hashtags go, the spammy sort of BS hashtags in that horrible promotional picture. So I keep trying to interview him and talk to him. And eventually we reach nine o'clock and he fires up his intro. It's like the worst shit I've ever heard. It's I can barely hear it. It sounds staticky. It's like 
he made it in five minutes. It's just annoying and god awful. It's just horrible on my ears. But I'm not, I didn't. I don't say anything. And we begin his show. And then I say, Wolfman, are you? Aren't you going to introduce your show? Or don't you have any opener or anything like that? And I apologize to you guys that that have already heard this because you're listening live. Obviously, I did not release this horrible travesty of a show or attempt of a show. So I apologize to you guys that actually heard all of this and have to relive it because I know it's awful. <laughs> so, so he he says that that's what he goes. No, I don't have any intro, but can can such and such person? I'm not going to say their names. Can X person and Y person from such and such podcast? join us i'm like what who are these people are they callers what what's going on here i i don't want to be mean so i'm just like yeah sure i don't care whatever so he brings these people on and here i think that i'm i'm interviewing wolfman and i realize rather quickly that these people that are on my show and wolfman's show at the same time they have no clue what's going on. He told them something completely different than what he told me. They they obviously were set up in some way where they were told to come on his show. I've already figured this out. He told them to come on his show. And he did not tell me. He did not tell me he wanted to, to, to do any of this stuff. Simulcast, bring these people on, any of it. He didn't tell me any of this. He's He was just trying to sneak it under the radar and hijack my show and push this all on me without my permission. He's trying to force me into promoting this other show and these other people. And I go back on Twitter. I look at that, that uh, promotional picture he made again. And I see these other tweets that say end of days, radio monster castle paranormal. And then this third show and the names are smashed together and, it's being presented like it's a big mashup, which normally would be okay. I have no problem cross-promoting with people. I have no problem helping people out. But I don't like that sort of thing forced on me because I don't even know who I'm dealing with. And I don't know if I want to promote these people. I don't know who they are. But I'm still being really polite. I'm trying to make it work. I'm trying to talk to them. I, I'm apologizing to them. I'm trying to figure out who they are. And they, they just seem really offended. I, I still don't know if they even knew what was going on or not. But... Uh, suddenly Wolfman starts having problems with his stream and his stream is just screwing up and he's, he halts the whole show. My show's fine. My stream is fine. My show's going, people are listening of live listeners listening and he, he stops everything so he can work and fix his stream. So we just hear clanking around. I finally lose my temper. I say, look, Wolfman, you are on my time. My stream is working fine. You are on my time now. <laughs> it's it's my show. I, I don't even remember what I said. I said something like, this is my time now. You can fix your stuff later on. And I mentioned the woman's name that was part of that podcast that had came on. And I said, go ahead and go next. Because we were doing like a roundtable sort of thing about our paranormal experiences. So I said, go ahead and go. So she talks about it for a while gives her background, you know, which is fine. I'm just pissed all hell. And then her broadcasting partner takes over. He halts the show again and he says, Oh, Wolfman, we better get that problem fixed with your stream. Let's, it, he, he has this attitude like, let's just halt everything. I've got control of the mic. 
you let's take this opportunity to fix whatever problems that you're having with your stream. I mean, it's not really the guy's fault. He didn't know that I was set up and forced to do all this. He probably just thought I was being a jerk. I mean, fair enough, right? Because he didn't know that I was tricked into all of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's it's some really demented shit. <laughs> so, so he's Wolfman gets his stream fixed, and I'm holding my tongue just because I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to be an a hole. So I'm holding my tongue, and this guy is just launching into this whole backstory of who he is, what he's all about. He's just going on and on. I've never heard of him before, and he's. I mean, I talked for about three to five minutes. The woman talked for three to five minutes. This guy's going on like 10, 15 minutes just talking about himself. So I make an executive decision. I move my mouse over to the hang up button on Skype and I just hang up the phone and I just pulled right the F out of there. And later on, I did some investigating. I went back on Twitter and I looked at that promotional picture again and it actually said in the promotional picture that Wolfman made, he put end of days radio meets monster castle paranormal. And then he included the names of these two other broadcasters in that promotional poster. So he was planning this all ahead long before he asked me if it was okay to bring them on long before he asked me if it was okay to simulcast. He had already told these people that they were coming on his show at a certain time. That's why he wanted to start at exactly nine o'clock. Because he had planned this whole thing out behind my back. He's just treating me like somebody's opinion, who, somebody whose opinion doesn't even matter. Somebody who's just a dumb chump. That's how he was treating me. He's treating me like just some fucking asshole that, that deserves to be treated like shit. He's pissing all over my show. And I did not appreciate that. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that I put up with because he had told me that his wife had passed. But after he put me through all that stuff, I don't I, come to think of it. I don't remember him ever being married. I remember him having a girlfriend. I remember talking to her on the show years ago. I don't remember him being married. I don't know if he's telling the truth. If he is, then I apologize. That is awful to even talk about any of that stuff. But if he's not, and he's making it up. Then that is really terrible. And <laughs> I, I've never dealt with anybody that disrespectful, anybody with that, much of a hijacking sort of mentality towards other people's shows. And I understand that it's like a comedy thing and he, he just doesn't have any format or structure for his show, but he knows what my show is about. He knows end of days radio. He's been on plenty of times. He's pulled his bullshit on this show plenty of times in the past. So fuck that Wolfman. Fuck you. You are banned from this program for one year, you are banned because you are an asshole. You do not respect me. You do not respect this show. Don't call me on Skype in the middle of my show trying to bring me on your show. Yeah, that's something I didn't tell you guys about. He was doing that too. He's just calling me. I'm trying to do my show and he's calling me trying to bring me on his show. Not because he likes me, not because he cares about me or my show, just because he's trying to use me and use my show for listeners. And he's a phony fuck. He sits there and pretends to be your friend, but he probably doesn't even like me. He probably hates me. He's probably jealous because nobody gives a fuck about his show. <laughs> so that's it in a nutshell. I mean, um, I, I feel terrible for the Wolfman that his, his wife had passed on, but I don't even know if he's telling the truth. So I'll just leave it at that. And I won't be inviting him back on here for at least a year. And Wolfman, if you're going to complain, 
you should be glad that it's not a lifetime ban after what you pulled on me. Hopefully in that year, you will get a clue and you will rethink your marketing strategies and you will stop being such an asshole to people that are trying to help you out because that's all I was trying to do. All you had to do was sit there and answer my questions. All you had to do was sit there and answer my questions and let me put you over. Let me get you exposure. That's all you had to do. But no, you had to make your own plans and you had to drive me crazy and you had to pistol over the show for no reason. Other than you have a friggin' trailer park boys mentality towards podcasting, which normally I would probably like and think is funny, but not when I'm getting screwed over. Not when I'm getting set up for three-way shows with people that I've never heard about. And I have no, you can't force people on my show, buddy. Oh, did I really just talk about that for however many, however many minutes? That's probably not a good thing, but hopefully now you guys at least know what happened and you can put it to rest. (laughs) Oh man. After all that, where do I go from here? Uh, And it's sad because like I said, I really just wanted to help the guy out. I, I really was just doing it from my own goodness and my own kindness, but that was taken advantage of, which is a problem that I have. People are always doing this to me. They're always taking advantage of my kindness. You know, they get my ear, they get my attention, and and I, I start wishing that I was more of a jerk because then I wouldn't have to deal with it. <laughs> okay, um, I do got some emails here, so why don't I, why don't I read a couple emails? And then I have a new segment for the show that I'm going to be introducing, but I'll talk about that in a second. First, let's read a couple emails. Okay, so... Hi, Dan Man. This is the first one. Hi, Dan Man. I guess that's my name now, Dan Man. Your show is getting insanely good. You have a great radio voice and are the funniest guy in podcasting or radio. Would you ever go on Sirius or host Coast to Coast AM on weekends? That's from Keith. Um, first of all, Keith, thank you for writing the show. If anybody wants to write in, that's DanielEndOfDaysRadio at gmail.com. Remember, that's DanielEndOfDaysRadio at gmail.com. I thank you so much for saying that I have a good voice and I'm funny and all that. That's, that's awesome. As far as Sirius... If Sirius offered me my own show tomorrow and they told me they'd pay for it, of course I'd take it. Um, I'd have certain demands about the format and what I'm allowed to say and stuff like that. But yeah, I would I would be down for that. Um, but then you get into that thing where I want people to be able to get this show for free and I want them to be able to get it on YouTube and everywhere else. So maybe not. It would have to be a special deal of some kind. And I don't think they would be willing to do that. So my answer would probably actually have to be no. And then the other question, would I ever would I ever host Coast to Coast on weekends? Well, that's a flat out no, absolutely not. I have no desire to do anything like that. I think that that's just perceived as something valuable because there aren't a whole lot of places you can go in paranormal podcasting. So that's that's a lot of people's idea of something to achieve or reach for, but I wouldn't want anything to do with it. For one thing, everything that's said on that program is extremely controlled. 
you aren't allowed to go deep like I do with this program. How could I go from this to that? The other thing is that's that's George Norrie's show. He's going to be hosting it until he's a very old man. He's not going to let go of that. He's very into it. He does his. He has fifty different ways to make money off of it. Uh, he thinks his birthday is a big deal. He's he's very into what he's doing. He's not going anywhere. And would I want to go on there the occasional Saturday or Sunday? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to support that whole thing. I'm an Art Bell guy. I'm all about Art Bell. The truth and fact of the matter is most people are sellouts. I would say like 90% of people are, but I am one of the rare people that does not sell out. Part of that is because I know how to make money. I know how to make money all kinds of different ways without hustling anybody, without ripping anybody off, just because I'm a smart guy and I have a lot of business experience and I know how to make money. I don't need to do something like that for money. Now, would I want to do this show every day if I somehow found it to be possible? Absolutely. That would be like a dream come true and have everything under my own banner, have my website, my social media, all of that stuff. I don't need coast to coast. I don't need any networks. I don't need anybody. Capiche? I don't need anybody. Why would I? I mean, it's just the truth. Why would I want to give somebody else control of things? That doesn't make sense. Why would I do that? I mean, there are people out there that are honest, that are good, that won't ever screw you over. But they're like, what, the minority? I mean, most people will fuck you over first chance that they can get. That's why it's so amazing when you do come across a good businessman who is honest, that does have integrity, because they are a rarity. But no, I don't have any desire to go on Sirius or Coast to Coast or anything like that. I'm sorry if some of you out there don't like that. Uh, If you're looking forward to seeing me or hearing me on coast to coast, it's just not going to happen. Even if they begged me, I wouldn't. And, you know, I've got friends over there like Connie Willis. uh, She's my friend and she's she does coast to coast. She's been doing it more and more. But that's great for her. I mean, that's that's awesome. It it works for her and she enjoys it. That's fine. I'm fine doing this. Um. Okay, this is a weird one. So this one says, Hi, Daniel the Cocker Spaniel. I guess he's trying to be funny. We know your favorite superhero is the Silver Surfer, but who is the most badass villain? This comes from Ted. That's a good question, Ted. First of all, thank you for the email. I do very much appreciate getting these emails. And I have a lot of trouble answering that question. I'm going to go with two different guys because this is difficult. So the first one's going to be Magneto. I think Magneto is a fascinating villain. He's super powerful. He has this whole anti-hero sort of vibe about him. Like he thinks what he's doing is right, which I think is great because the, two-dimensional villain who is bad just because he's bad is boring. What's interesting are realistic characters that believe they're doing the right thing even when they're not, because that's how it is in real life. A lot of times when people do bad things, they think they're doing the right thing. So that's what I like about Magneto. And he's very powerful. He can rip a person apart just by harnessing the metals in their body just use the little bits of metal in their body to just rip them into a million pieces he could just do that in an instant he could 
he can do almost anything. He can create a black hole and teleport to somewhere else. He can move things that are gigantic. He can uh, all kinds of things. I, I would have to look at a long list of it, of everything that he can do with the magnetism, but because he has that ability to affect magnetism, he can do just about anything. He's got godlike powers. He can fly. He can create a force field around himself. And it's interesting because He's standing up to the humans for the mutants. He's kind of standing up for a cause. He's standing up for the... It's kind of like a racial allegory. He's he's almost like a figure like Malcolm X or something like that. But he's bad. So I shouldn't say he's like Malcolm X. Actually, Professor X would be more like Malcolm X. Which is ironic because his name's Professor X. I never thought about that, but whatever. Uh, Magneto, definitely. The other one would have to be the Violator from the Spawn comics. I think the Violator is a badass. He's this demon, and he walks around. He walks around in most cases, and most of the time, in the guise of this fat little clown with a sense of humor. But when he becomes the Violator, his full form, he looks like this cool-looking, bug-like, tall, spindly, white, sort of alien-looking, demonic creature with tons of teeth and eyes like a fly, and he's always cracking jokes always making Spawn miserable. A lot of you guys aren't going to remember Spawn because Spawn was super popular in the 90s, like middle mid-90s, I would say. Just popular as hell. Like, everybody was buying Spawn comics. And then he kind of just went away. And now, I think the comic's still going, but a lot of people don't know who Spawn is or don't give a shit about Spawn. They sort of told his whole story, and then it was like, okay, what do we do now sort of thing, and they had to kind of give him other stories and do different things with it. But um, Magneto and the Violator, I would say those are my two favorite villains. That that was really a tough question. I I just I I just have a tough time with that. There's other guys that come to mind, like Venom from the Spider-Man comics, or Thanos. He's going to be big in the movies that are coming up. There's tons of them. I mean, Doctor Doom, Galactus. Yeah, anyways. Okay, so I think I'll save these other letters. I do have some more letters, but I think I'll save them for the next show because there's just so much to get to. I uh, I did want to give a shout-out to the actor that played Lafayette in the True Blood series. I heard the other day that he had passed on, which I think is really sad because... That character was great. I mean, the show True Blood was great. It was a really excellent show. I always enjoyed it. I always watched it. Some of the plots were kind of stupid, and there's a lot of gore and a lot of sex and stuff like that. I don't really care to see those things necessarily, but I love anything with vampires, anything with werewolves, anything like that. And for the most part, the series had some memorable characters and was rather well done, and I was really sad when it, when it reached its final season and when you hear about an actor like that that's young and just dies unexpectedly it's really sad i mean the guy had his whole life ahead of him he probably would have went on to play in all kinds of movies and tv shows so it's, it's sad to hear about that i think the true blood show is based on a book series called the southern vampire mysteries it's a popular series so you might want to check that out if you're into that sort of thing 
they were talking about doing a spinoff, but they never did it. That's sad. They, not to my knowledge, anyways. There's always so much stuff happening. Maybe it did happen. I just don't know about it, but I don't think so. Um. <laughs> okay, this is the other thing. We were talking a lot about that kid that went over to North Korea, and then they put him in prison. And they even... They sent him home, but they beat the crap out of him, and they caused him to become brain dead. He was in a coma, then they sent him home, and he died when he got here. I was furious about that. I did a whole long rant on this show and everything. I just... I was so pissed off. But... Recently, I guess Dennis Rodman went over to North Korea and he was talking about what a great guy Kim Jong-un is, how they do karaoke together, how they, what was the other thing, they golf together or something like that. Uh, No, it was horseback riding. They horseback ride and they do karaoke together. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Dennis Rodman, the worm, sitting there with this little Asian guy with a bowl cut? And they're sitting there doing karaoke together. First of all, that would be the most hilarious thing of all time. Especially if they actually ride horses together afterwards. I hope they gave Rodman a real tall, spindly-looking horse to match his physique. And Kim Jong-un would have like a short little fat horse, like a pony. (laughs) I don't know. But what's wrong with Rodman? Why would he in any way approve of this guy or talk about him in a positive light or even go over there or deal with him at all. Does he think he's doing something for the world? If he is, if he does think that, then what improvement has there been? I remember when he first went over there years and years ago and the guy hasn't gotten any softer on his citizens or America or anything like that. So what does Rodman think that he's doing? Does he think that he's helping? I'm willing to bet that Kim Jong-un just sees him as a clown, as an entertainer, as a sideshow, and he enjoys having him there. But does it affect relations with the U.S. or with his own people at all? I really don't think so. I think that Dennis Rodman would be better served to just stay home and not worry about going to North Korea or getting attention or whatever he's after. I don't dislike Rodman. He's a great basketball player. He seems like a good dude, but I think that he's on the wrong track here. I I think he should he should stay away from that country for his own sake. Not that they'll probably ever do anything to him, but you never know. Look, they just killed this other kid. So Rodman, just stay out of there, buddy. Um, the other thing is that I did want to talk about this. Um, for all the time I've been doing this show and been into this sort of stuff, I have had some weird things happen, like my ears ringing and... Uh, Even hearing voices, feeling like things are touching me, feeling pains in my body, stuff like that. Humming, strange humming, low frequency, high frequency. I don't know what that stuff is. It could be a lot of different things. But I can say that I haven't been threatened by any government people or black ops people. I haven't had anything like that happen. I've never felt like I was being watched or spied on or harassed by the government or any sort of thing like that. I just haven't. I I don't feel like I've been gang stalked. I I mean, I've had people be really mean to me for, for like no reason, but maybe they were gang stalking me or maybe they're just jerks. It's really hard to tell sometimes, but I know for sure I haven't had any government people try to silence me. Somebody 
tried to kill me when I was 18 years old, but I don't know if that was somebody from the government. <laughs> it could have been somebody from a different country or something like that. Have I told that story on here? I don't even remember. I will tell it on the next show because it's a pretty good story. I think I've told it, but I'll tell it again on the next show. But other than that, I haven't been harassed, gang stalked or anything like that. And I, I really wonder why if I am indeed spreading truth and bringing facts to light, I've, I've talked about planet X. I've talked about flat earth. I've talked about nine 11. I've talked about reptilians, black magic, Illuminati, just about anything that you could possibly talk about to get yourself in trouble. Yet I've had no backlash, no repercussions. Here I am sitting here just perfectly fine. I'm not not even worried about it. I know that later on I'm going to go watch some wrestling. <laughs> and I got things that I need to take care of. But I, I don't feel like I'm in any danger. I'm not worried or anything like that. So take that for what it's worth. I'm not really trying to make any point other than... I don't really feel like I'm in any danger at the moment. There's times when I get really paranoid and I think that something like that might be going on, but I, I just don't think so. I don't think that I don't think that I'm in any danger or that anybody's out to get me. I, I'm sure that they spy on me, but they spy on all of us. I don't I don't think that I'm a threat or a priority or anything like that. I, I just haven't experienced. I'm just being honest. I'm being honest with you guys. I would never lie to you because this shows about the truth. And while there are times when I might read too much into things and I might think that a loud noise outside is an alien or a ghost or something, there are times when I make mistakes like that. I exaggerate things, but I've never tried to lie or hoax you guys on anything. Everything that I've ever said on here or privately has always been the hundred percent truth. And I hope that you know that. And, and that's, that's something that's so important to me because I want you to trust me. I want you to trust this show. And I want you to know that if I do suspect that a guest is completely bunk, I won't have them on the show. I won't. And that, that means not putting up with Wolfman lying. If I know he's lying or, or anything else, because I do believe in the truth. I do believe in a global awakening and I do believe that this stuff is 100% real, whether we're talking about UFOs, whether we're talking about ceremonial magic, telepathy, whatever. I believe in that stuff. I believe in Sasquatch. Do I believe that the earth is flat? Look, I don't really know. It's a confusing topic and there's a lot of other things I'm confused about, but I promise you that I am all about honesty, integrity, and all about the truth. And I always will be because that's what this show is about. That's what I'm about. That's my thing is being honest. I want to be honest on the radio. And sometimes it can be hard because there's times when I'll have a guest on here and I'll be kind of thinking to myself, like that sounds a little far out. And sometimes you have to keep an open mind and that's fine. But if I know for sure that somebody's being dishonest with me, I'm not going to, I'm not going to entertain that. I'm not going to support it. I'm not going to be mean or rude about it. I'm not going to say anything, but I'm not going to support it. So I, I want you guys all out there to know that. I want you to know that I'm not some cocky bastard trying to get famous or anything like that. I am real. I'm legitimate. If you want to talk to me, I'll talk to you anytime. Just hit me up. You know, hit me up on Twitter, Daniel End of Days Radio at gmail.com. 
there's a million different ways to do it. Skype, Ninja Shoe Seven Seven Seven. But I'm I'm here for you. But be real, be real with me. I'll be real with you. Um. I guess that's it. I have a, I have so so many more notes here and so much stuff that I need to get into, but I'm just worn down and I'm tired. I've been working really hard lately. Uh, the next show that I've scheduled is with Scotty Roberts, July 17th at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember to subscribe on TuneIn, search EODR to listen to the show live. Remember to catch those live shows. Go to endofdaysradio.com so you can check the schedule and see when the live shows are going on. Also, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Follow me on Twitter. That's at Ninja Shoes. Add me on Skype, Ninja Shoes 777. That call in number for the show is 209 348 9810. Please like me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash the real end of days radio. Subscribe on YouTube. The channel name is just end of days radio. If you want to donate to the show, go to endofdaysradio.com. Click that donate button. You can donate through PayPal. Help us keep the lights on and the servers up. Other than that, I will talk to you guys next time. I'm Daniel, and this is The End of Days. From the beginning. And I was shown that, um, uh, that Lucifer would return, that the UN and the Vatican were going to be completely behind it, again, under false pretenses. He's going to show up and say, I'm here to save the day. Right. Uh, and okay, fine. You know. Yeah, of course ahead, you can say whatever you want. But I've always hated censorship. It's the internet. Sometimes you know, once they get you for your first love bite, well, it depends on how aware you are, right? First of all, as you know, the uh, the Anunnaki and the Draco are enemies. Second of all, underneath Baghdad was a stargate that was created by the Anunnaki so that they could transfer from Jupiter to the Earth. I'll never see the sun I could just end it all But the demons will have one Practitioners that, you know, some are, are good and some use their magic for good and to heal and to help and others do use it for evil and, you know, in some cases, you know, people really were... This is too much sometimes.